It's October 29th, 2020. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 57 of Rook. Omidvar Hastam Kechub Bashin. I'm Gian Gomeshi, hoping you are doing all right out there, wherever you are. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity, coming to you on Telegram, on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, and YouTube. And remember, for all things Rook, our website is the place to find all of our previous episodes and links to our platforms and our Rook Reads blog and comments. That's rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. You know, we've been talking a lot recently about the situation of political prisoners and prisoners of conscience in Iran, a situation that reverberates in different ways for those of us across the diaspora, feeling outrage or shame, embarrassment, anger, or helplessness. And at the center of political prisoners and human rights activists is Nasrin Sotudeh, the Iranian lawyer who has been put in jail again in Iran and whose health and situation is becoming quite dire in recent days. She's also quite extraordinary, as you may know, having just won the alternative Nobel Prize for Human Rights this month. So we've opted to stray from our regular format and do another Rook special in order to spread the word, educate ourselves as much as we can, and listen to those who can tell us a little bit more of what's happening with Nasrin Sotudeh's situation from a political or social, cultural, historical, and ethical perspective. In the coming three hours, it's long, but you can listen to it in parcels or all in one go if you want. We want to do our best to learn about the situation of Nasrin Sotudeh, who she is, the role she has played in the field of human rights in Iran, and what her current ongoing imprisonment means for her, for Iranians, and for the world. We're going to go to a number of notable voices in the Iranian diaspora around the world to help out with this. So we are going to hear from Elahe Shafipur Hicks in New York, Natalie Amiri in Munich, Abdul Karim Lahiji in Paris, Ramin Jahanbeglu in Toronto, Mehangisa Kar, who resides in Washington, D.C., Hossein Raisi in Ottawa, Jeff Kaufman, the director of the new documentary Nasreen in Los Angeles, and a special update and message from Nasreen Sotudeh's husband, Reza Khandon, in Tehran. This show will be in English and Persian, mostly in English, but there's some Persian, and we have subtitles on some of the Persian materials. So if you are listening on, say, Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud, and you do not speak Persian, you may want to switch to YouTube or Instagram or Telegram to see the subtitles. So Let's begin first with some background about the woman at the center of this episode. This is a Rook special, the case for Nasreen. Well, 
she is quickly becoming an international figure who is easily identifiable by just one name, Nasreen. And no amount of detention, suppression, oppression, or fear-mongering by a regime intent on silencing her seems to prevent her from continuing on her journey towards democracy and justice. Nasreen Sotudeh is an Iranian attorney. She is known for her staunch advocacy for children's rights, women's rights, human rights. She has devoted her life to speaking out against injustices carried out by authorities under the Islamic Republic. She has stood firm against systemic discrimination and stood for freedom of speech and basic tenets enshrined in the UN Charter of Human Rights. Her guiding principles have been to do what is ethical and do what is right under international law. She's a founding member of a group in Iran opposed to capital punishment. Her long opposition to the obligatory hijab and her defense of political prisoners and minority rights are well known. She was one of the originators of the 2005 movement, the One Million Signatures Campaign for Equality Under the Law, which aimed at removing discriminatory laws against women. That was around the time when she went from diminutive, hardworking lawyer to influential and undeniable presence in the fight for equality. Nasreen was born in 1963 into a middle-class Iranian family. She studied law at the National University in Tehran and passed the bar in 1995, soon emerging as one of the most active members of the Law Society. When she started her practice, the horror that she faced was completely beyond her expectation. She found children as young as 11 under death sentences, myriad cases of child abuse, domestic attacks on women and children, human rights abuses, and cases involving defenders of democratic rights. She threw herself into the legal defense of those who needed help and were victims of human rights violations. That resolve and impact of Nasreen Sotudeh soon made her an enemy of the Iranian authorities. Nasreen was initially arrested in 2010 and served three years. Her first hunger strike made news stories around the world. Then she was suddenly released on the eve of President Hassan Rouhani's trip to New York to attend the opening of the UN General Assembly. But her rights were restricted as a lawyer for some time, and her freedom was ultimately ephemeral. She took the case of those young women challenging Iran's rigid hijab laws and was soon apprehended again. In 2018, she was arrested alongside the imprisonment of a number of other human rights lawyers, solidly placing Iran among the handful of countries where lawyers are seized simply for defending those accused of political offenses. The exact length of Nasreen Satudeh's prison term remains unclear. The official sentence seems to be 38 years in prison and 148 lashes for doing her job as a lawyer. Members of her family have also been threatened, arrested, and detained as a way of further neutering her strength. She recently went on another hunger strike, was moved to a more difficult prison, and as of yesterday, was refusing her own heart medication in protest. And yet, through all this, Nasreen Sotudeh remains as she has always been, a courageous fighter for basic human rights. She will continue this struggle, it seems, no matter how long the authorities keep her in prison. She and other Iranian female activists are role models and leaders of the struggle for equality and justice in Iran. 
Nasreen Sotudeh has become a global symbol, an example, and perhaps someone destined to join the names of those brave souls who have created groundbreaking change around the world throughout history. This is the case for Nasreen. Okay, let's get started and go to New York and the first of a diversity of voices we want to hear from in the coming two and a half hours. My first guest today, giving us a broader context for the importance of Nasreen Sotudeh and her imprisonment, is a leading Iranian-American human rights activist. Elahesh Sharifpur Hicks was educated in Iran at the University of Tehran Faculty of Law and Political Science and moved to the United States in 1987. She completed Fordham Law School in New York in 1991 and began her career with international organizations focusing on human rights issues. She contributed to a report on the legal system of the Islamic Republic of Iran published by the then Lawyers Committee for Human Rights in 1992. Between 1994 and 2003, she was the researcher on Iran for Human Rights Watch, where she wrote numerous reports on human rights issues in Iran and conducted advocacy with Iranian officials. She traveled to Iran repeatedly on human rights missions during that period, meeting with many leading Iranian activists. Elahe was instrumental in bringing prominent human rights lawyer Shirin Ebadi, the Nobel laureate, on her first advocacy visits to the U.S. in 1990. And 1998. Elahe has successfully directed multiple projects for Partners for Rights, aimed at building the capacity of Iranian lawyers to use international human rights standards in their domestic legal practices. And right now, Elahe Sharifpur Hicks joins me from New York today. Hello. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for leading off our show. It's uh, important that we have you here. We really appreciate it. You, you, you have worked in human rights issues for years. Um, Elahe, can you, can you give us a, a context for the importance of Nasreen Sotudeh, both as an advocate for human rights in Iran and in the last decade or so as a symbol of someone whose human rights are being violated herself under the Islamic Republic authorities? Uh, yes, as you mentioned while you are introducing me, since I start working in the field of human rights and I focus on Iran, uh, I truly believe uh, uh, that any change that it would happen in Iran, in Iran uh, should be from Iranian laws. As you might know, Iranian laws are so discriminatory. The violation is institutionalized in, in, in Iranian law. So who can change those laws? Or Iranian lawyer that working hard uh, since the since 42 years, since the revolution, and the only independent organization that we have after revolution, Iran Bar Association is under attack systematically by Iranian authority and Iranian judiciary. And lawyers are working hard, hard, and uh, Nasreen is one of them right now. And unfortunately, her condition is, as you mentioned, she's in prison. I truly believe 
law in Iran should change. If you are expecting any changes and expecting improvement in human rights uh, situation in Iran, I believe through Iranian lawyer is one of the mechanisms that they, this change can happen. And that's why we can talk about Nasreen's and other lawyers that really sacrifice their life and they put their life in the line to improve and really, really no need for a lawyer to go to prison because just defending another victim of human rights violation. Exactly. Listen, I should say uh, for people who are listening to this, there are going to be a lot of um, Iranians or people of Iranian descent uh, who are familiar with the uh, interesting legal journeys uh, that that occur in Iran or have in the last few decades. But for people who are listening who really um, aren't as familiar, how are we to make sense of the judiciary system in Iran that would imprison a lawyer simply for defending others who have been arrested? How, what what is, can you even put into words how we're supposed to understand this system? As simple like that, for for your audience, Iranian judicial system is not accountable to anyone except the Iranian leader. It's, it's a selective procedure. The head of the judiciary is not an independent person. It's selected directly by Iranian uh, leader, Mr. Khamenei, and he's only accountable to him. And unfortunately, since the beginning of the revolution, 41 years ago, the, this institution, three power, judiciary, legislative, and uh, executive, should be de- independent from each other. But this institution, specifically the judiciary, is very politicized, is completely politicized, is not independent, and that's the problem. We don't have, as in Iranian, many Iranians say, we don't have Adalat Khane. We don't have any justice, any house of justice that Iranian could go there and seek justice because this the judiciary is very politicized and not accountable to anyone except the leader. Well, that also means that we then don't have human rights uh, in, in Iran. How did human rights come to be portrayed as a quote-unquote Western concept in some circles in Iran? This is something I can't totally get my head around. It seems strange that human rights would ever be considered anything other than universal. Uh, tell me about that. Well, uh, if I talk about the story, a very, but really story of a late Mr. Khorasani, he used to be ambassador, first ambassador, second ambassador, Iran ambassador at the United Nations. He was accused of some shoplifting and he went back to Iran. He, he was speaking, he could speak English and he became the head of the uh, first, first government, I should say, but uh, an association uh, human rights association within the parliament. He was selected as a par- as a member of parliament, and he he- was headed at the, this association within the parliament. They call it commission, commission uh, ninety, which is famous, and still that commission is working to look at human rights violation by the government, by the legislative power. However, one of my trip to Iran during President Khatami. He told me in one of my, as his official capacity, that we wanted to have human rights. We didn't know what is human rights. The member of parliament, they don't know respect for human rights. And since they start attacking us and our political behavior, meaning he meant mass execution, 
at the beginning of the revolution, all the execution, he said, so all we could do is politicize human rights. And this is quote unquote, he, uh, politicize human rights, the notion of human rights, and all we could take the human rights issue and talk about Palestinian and Palestinian violation of human rights. And we couldn't have an answer. Parliamentarian does not know what is quote-unquote, Mr. Larijan, I'm sorry, Mr. Rajai Khorasani said to me directly, and it's been written in my reports, we could not, the member of parliament, they don't know what does it mean, respect of individual rights. And if we talk about that, a political prisoner's right, they come and they beat me in the middle of the yard of, uh, of the parliament, he said, again, quote-unquote, and this conversation has been published by Human Rights Watch. So going back to 90s and this conversation is a long time ago. So that's all about human rights in Iran is, again, like any, it's become a tool. But and, isn't this, uh, I'm sorry, but isn't this ironic, uh, given that if you go, I don't want to get too into the weeds on this because it would take an entire show, but if you go to, uh, quite far back in history, I mean, I'm to understand that actually the concept of human rights originated from Persians. <laughs> and, and so now we've got to a, uh, uh, to a point in the 21st century where it is portrayed as a Western concept and not applied in the country or in the place that um, many would argue it actually originated. When we have a law that in that law, you take the custody of a child and give it to the father upon the divorce and say the woman has not, there's no capacity woman to take care of her own child. So we have, as I told you at the beginning, Iranian laws violate Iranian human rights, Iranians' rights, minority, ethnic minority, religious minority, children, women, all of them, their rights is being violated in written laws in Iran. Yes, you're you're talking about our history, but unfortunately, laws changed since the revolution, and we have, we have. I don't want to use that the horrific laws that violate Iranian Iranian people, all sorts of Iranian, and that the laws should change, and that's why we have we have another politicized human rights issue. And we have, on the other hand, law violation that has been institutionalized in our laws. So when it comes to human rights, women's rights, children's rights, uh, minority rights, that has become the life work of Nasrin Sotudeh. Uh, let me ask you specifically about her now. She, there. I mean, uh, as we start off this special, I, I have to say, I mean, there, there, there has been coverage in recent years in in mainstream media, uh, international campaigns for her release. There is now a major documentary about her that's being released, and um, I would say, hopefully, having seen it because it's quite powerful, it'll get seen by many around the world. Uh, why does Elahe? Why does the Nasrin Sotudeh story resonate for so many? around the world because unfortunately there are many other countries that lawyers are being under attack just defending law a uh, victim of human rights violation Nasrin is among those lawyers and there are many of them there are many of them right now six seven of them in prison simply because they defend the victim of human rights violation inside Islamic Republic prisons Nasrin 
I mean, I should say she used many, many, uh, uh, she went hunger strike. She is, she's outspoken. And for that reason, she managed, how to say, to ma the international community are paying attention yes. because of her condition and she's a woman and she is very outspoken in a way, in a way that I am, I have problem and I do not approve of a woman go hunger struck for many weeks and days. It's she, she's harming herself. She's sacrificing her health that in order to raise her voice, many other lawyers still in prison and they are quiet. And that's why in my view, Nasrin is using these tools to call the international community attention for the situation inside Iran and inside Iranian prisons. It, I mean, it, it has been said quite regularly now that the leading agents of social change and activism in Iran, I guess we would include you in this in, in recent decades, are women, especially in the context of Iran's patriarchal culture. Even even many of the most well-known political prisoners have been uh, women, people like Nagas Mohammadi, who was uh, released recently, or Nagas Hosseini, who Nasreen defended. What has Nasreen Sotudeh meant to women's role in the broader struggle for basic political and civil rights in the country? Well, she, she become a, a symbol for many, many, many Iranian women, not specifically lawyers. You know that, as you mentioned, we have so many activists, thank God, staying in Iran, they are in Iran, and her resistance, her capability to raise her voice, and under this very difficult situation, uh, talk about her, uh, and put a pressure by Iranian government to just demand her, uh, her not her situation for herself. Not She's not asking a fair trial for herself. She should have, but she's asking for the situation of political prisoner. She is doing the, a battle that I must say 100, 200, many, many should do it together in an organization. As, as you know, we don't have any independent human rights organization in Iran. We don't have, there is, they don't allow any independent association, even charity as organization to, to practice in Iran. So Nasrin become a voice of, of an organization, a very, very a vast organization inside Iran. And unfortunately, she's talking from prisons, which is very, I mean, should raise concern about her health. And I hope, I hope that she take care of herself. Elaha, you said a few moments ago that this is about changing Iranian laws. Um, in this new documentary about uh, uh, about Nasreen Sotadeh, entitled Nasreen, and we have the director, Jeff Kaufman, coming up in a little while on this special, Nasreen says at one point in the doc, you can't just change the way governance is done in Iran. The public culture needs to change. Do you have a sense of what she means by that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. If you think tomorrow uh, uh, we have a, a government that screams for human rights, improve of human rights, or respect for human rights, as long as we have the culture and and that because because in Iranian school, elementary, kindergarten, all the way up, this issue of a culture, the culture respecting each individual rights, teamwork, working together, respecting each other, respecting our religious, respecting our uh, identity, uh, uh, tolerating each other. These are not being uh, 
taught in our school in Iran. So we have lots and lots of work, and I understand what Nasreen is saying. Before everything, we must work and work hard. And Iranian inside Iran are very smart, young generation. They know there is a lot to work, and unfortunately, we've been they've been denied. They've been denied access and contact with the international community that they can learn from each other and improve the situation. That is a, another major problem that Iranians inside the country, they, they, are, they are facing. Honestly, they are very smart, very well educated. They know what to do better than everyone, but they are very isolated and they don't, they need help from international community, all sorts of help, and start from first grade, kindergarten, all the way up to improve uh, this first thing and tolerate each other and respect each other. That's quite a mountain to climb. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, you've been at this for decades. You know, Nasreen said today, when you talk about the hunger strike, it's almost like asking, well, which one? I mean, she was on a hunger strike 10 years ago, the first time they imprisoned her. Uh, and so it's it's hard to not get deflated and, and think that things are simply not changing. How do you deal with managing your own cynicism? Listen, a human rights is nothing that you expect in perhaps when I started back in 1992, uh, Many people, legendary, as you mentioned, Mr. Rahiji, uh, Dr. Anwari based in London, uh, Shirin uh, Abadi, Mehrangi Zekar, that they really, really sacrificed their life and they left everything behind. They said, we are not going to see the change in our life. And after that, my life and many, many, unfortunately, it's a process. It's a really a process and uh, it's a long, long way. But every step, we can, we really, I do believe we can change, we can move the mountain, but it's not in my generation, perhaps, or Shirin Abadi or Mehrangiz, or even Nasrin. But if we have, there's the only thing we can, we cannot stop. And we owe it to younger. And when I see many, many, as you, I, as you know, I am working with Iranian lawyer inside Iran, and we work a training and learning how to use international human rights mechanism. I can see every day, and it's empowering me to see how dedicated Iranian women and men, young lawyer, they are ready to go, and hopefully, hopefully, they are going to achieve, but we don't know when. Before I let you go, a couple of questions about just the reality of what we're seeing right now with the, the Nasrin Satudeh case. I wonder about how the regime, I, I suspect I'm going to ask this question of a few of the guests today, but how the regime is weighing the costs of keeping Nasreen detained. I mean, it, it would seem prudent, given that she has become this um, international figure. She's become this symbol. People are using words like Mandela when they describe her, you know. Uh, it would seem almost prudent for the regime to to release her, if not to just... Um, tamp down the, the kind of coverage she's getting, uh, unless, of course, the, that just falls on deaf ears in Iran, anything that might be, be said by Amnesty International or The Guardian or whomever outside of Iran. Why do you think that they keep imprisoning someone who's getting this much attention? Listen, there are hundreds, not thousands like Nasrin outside in Iran. They're living in Iran. They have to create an environment of, and to intimidate them. What they can do, 
keep Nasrin. Nasrin doesn't do anything. Nasrin, Nasrin is asking to improve the situation of Iranian prison and release political prisoner. Or she's asking for fair trial, fair trial. She's not asking anything. She's not asking for changing the government. There are thousands like Nasrin inside Iran. How to silence them? Keep Nasrin and like Nasrin inside prison. And unfortunately, they managed to do that. Why? Because Iranian, under the sanction, under the poverty, under the economic situation of pressure, that unfortunately, an isolation of Iranian, uh, you know, society inside the country, they cannot even travel anymore. So here we are. Iran would not respond to anyone. And again, we have a major, major vacuum in international community. Look what happened to the United States. Look what's happening to Human Rights uh, uh, Council. Saudi Arabia, China, and Russia are members of uh, uh, Human Rights Council. So Libya. So we have this big, huge vacuum outside uh, weakening that's you know I'm not saying weakening it's it's a big vacuum by international community actor major actor and inside Iranian are under pressure economic pressure that they have to look for bread and water so and the government can do whatever they do because that's the way they can right now a final question to you. It's been uh, so important to have you on this program and leading us off. Thank you so much for doing this. You know, this program is uh, uh, officially, at least ostensibly, about uh, Iran people of Iranian descent living in the diaspora, so people in our global community, uh, although we have some people listening and streaming us from, from Iran itself. Outside of Iran, uh, it's clear the importance of Nasreen Sotudeh and the fight for human rights inside Iran. What do you believe the relevance of Nasreen in this case is for those of us who are Iranians living in the diaspora? It's it's all we have to do, honestly, and all we can to do, many of us, that we that just to be a platform, to be a voice, your program introducing Nasrin to international community, to Iranian generation outside, I mean, Iranian outside Iran. So that's all we can do. Be not, not be our own voice, be their voice and be Nasrin voice. Be a platform for whatever Nasrin is asking. Maybe you, maybe I can go to to European Union. Maybe you or I can go to Human Rights a council and Iran, those that working on him, United Nations, reach out to Secretary General and talk, be a voice for Nasrin and so many like, like Nasrin inside Iranian prison, unfortunately, or outside, they are working hard, night and day. Elahe Sharifpur Hicks. I thank you so much for taking the time today, for helping us understand what's going on, and I hope to get to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I wish you all the best and good luck with your program. Merci. Khodafiz. Merci.
This is a Rook special, The Case for Nasreen, coming to you on Telegram, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, and YouTube. We just heard a broader perspective around Nasreen and human rights from Elahe Hicks. My next guest can give us a view of Nasreen Sotudeh, the Iranian judiciary, and all that this story represents from both a journalistic viewpoint and a very personal proximity as well. She has live reported from war zones and the sites of natural disasters around the world and has interviewed powerful Iranian figures such as Rafsanjani, Musavi, Zahra Rahnavard, Karubi, Khatemi, Ahmadinejad, and Nasreen Sotudeh a few times. Natalie Amiri is an award-winning German-Iranian journalist. She studied Eastern studies with a focus on Iranian studies. She has worked at the German embassy in Tehran and for numerous news programs and magazines, as well as television and radio stations such as ARD Broadcasters, Daily Themes, Phoenix, and Deutschland Radio. Natalie has been ARD's chief correspondent at the Tehran Bureau for the past five years. She has reported from Iran for many years, and she has been regularly in touch with Nasreen Sotudeh and her husband Reza Khandon and Natalie Amiri joins me from Munich, Germany right now. Hi Natalie. Hi. Nice to have you back on the program. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. There have been thousands of political prisoners in Iran, prisoners of conscience, as you know, as we all know, devastating stories, all worthy of being told. Uh, in your view, why has the case of Nasrin Sotudeh become such a beacon of so much attention? Nasrin Sotudeh is, uh, is not an unknown lawyer. You know, she is the symbol for the human rights fight against the regime. And she is the, she's a, such a brave woman for women rights. So I was several times with her in court and I accompanied her during her um, work. And she was like, you know, everybody in Iran knows her. She is the one, one of the few lawyers in Iran um, who is fighting for women rights in front of the court. Um, so in all of the campaigns, you know, and the, the women, the girls, when they went out and, you know, took their scarves off. So she was the one who had the courage to go in front of the court and, and fight for them. So she's a very yeah, famous and, and brave woman of Iran. As you say, she's famous for women's rights, children's rights, human rights. When did you, and minority rights, fighting for uh, religious minorities, yeah. etc. When did you first hear of her? Do you remember your first encounter with her? Yes, she was a lawyer of Sinan. She was getting the death penalty, um, but he was convicted as a minor. She was fighting for him. So I knew Nasrin from this case on. It's about, let me think, 13 years ago. Since then, I'm all the time yeah, being in contact with her and um, accompanying her while she is um, doing her work. Last time I was interviewing her um, when she was, you know, she was one of the actresses in the movie Tehran Taxi from yes, Jafar Panahi. Yes. And she was really saying really brave things. And also after in the interview, she was saying things. And I was, during I did the interview, I was thinking, oh, my God, when she's now saying this and I broadcast it, she will go to prison because it's so, you don't hear so 
such, you know, input and such brave sentences from mm -hmm. people for, in Iran, because it's like you say this, it's being broadcasted and the next day they will pick you up and bring you to prison. So it's very brave to say something in Iran. Um, so we have a lot of Iranians outside of Iran. They're brave and they say something like this, but it's completely an up in a difference to say it in Iran. When you started interviewing her, when you got to know her, what uh, impressed you the most? I mean, clearly her courage. But what can you tell us about her character as some of us who just know her as this uh, incredible human rights lawyer, um, this symbol? Um, what, what, what do you know about her personally that you would want people to know? She said the worst thing for her is to be silent. And even in prison, she gave a letter out and I will write you some some sentences from this letter and then you understand this person. She said, Iran is a country where women's rights are systematically violated. It is all the more important to honor and commemorate International Women's Day. On this day, I think of the years that have passed, the years of our silence and our imprisonment, the years of protest, baudage and walls behind which we are trapped. So she is saying this from the prison. She, you know, she's already caught. You know, she is behind bars. So she's still not silent. Yes. And that's. I just, you know, <laughs> I just, um, I'm really. You're impressed. in awe. Yeah, as we are. Yes, indeed. She is in prison currently. Uh, again. Uh, as we know, yeah. and it, and it's from what we hear a dire situation. I I know you've been in touch with the family, and you actually have an exclusive message you got for us today. Can can you tell us about it? Yeah, I was um, talking two hours uh, ago with her husband Reza Khandan, and um, let's let's hear what he told me about her health condition. Please. نسرین از وقتی رفته بیمارستان زندان قرچک خب اونجا یکی دو بار اومدن ملاقات هایی با مسئولین سازمان زندان ها و معاون حقوق بشر قوه قضایی رفتن اونجا بازدید کردن و باش صحبت کردن پرونده ایم توی پزشک قانونی به جریان افتاده که چون مشکل قلبیش خیلی جدی و خطرناک حتی ما بحث مرخصی استعلاجی بود که بهشون گفتیم دیروز اتفاقا داشتیم با یکی دو نفر از اینا صحبت میکردیم میگفتیم که برای ما حیاتیه که این در اسرعی وقت بره یا مرخصی میخواییم بدین سری بدین چمیدونم خودتون میبرید سری ببرید این مشکل قلبیش خیلی خیلی جدی شده پری روزم پزشک داخلی زندان قرشک خیلی هشدار داده اون موقع هم که خودش بیمارستان بود خیلی علائمش رو نداشت فقط تنگی نفس داشت ولی کاملا الان علائم خیلی شدید درد سمت چف قفص سینه و کشیدگی که میگه تا بالای گردن میرسه خب کاملا اینا علائم مشکل حاد قلبیه تو این شرایط اما خب دارن بحث میکنن ببینن کمیسیون پزشکی چه نظری میخواد بده و آیا میخوان که مرخصی استعلاجی بدن بره بیمارستان یا نه تو این مرحله است فعلا یکی دو روز دیگه هم تعطیل تا شنبه ببینیم که چه اتفاقاتی خواهد افتاد خیلی ممنونم
Yeah. So that is, uh, to, to be clear, that's uh, Nassim Sotadeh's uh, husband, a longtime supporting, uh, supportive husband, Reza Khandan. Uh, and Natalie, you spoke to him. That's from today, huh? Yeah, that's from today. I'm um, the whole time in contact with him. Also, the last time, you know, um, I don't know if in Canada this um, alternative Nobel Prize is so famous, but she got this for the first time. Um, an Iranian activist won this award. It's um, while she was in custody, so she was named one of the winners of this international award. And you know, when I was talking with him, it was Wednesday when they announced the. Uh, the winners and um, I, I asked him how is the reaction from Nasrin and he said look I, she doesn't know it because she is in prison and the next time when I'm allowed to talk with her is on Saturday so everybody in the world knows that she got this prize yeah. except her did he say how she reacted um, so after this so I was talking on her on the day that she won the prize, so he couldn't tell me exactly her reaction because he didn't know it. She didn't know it, but um, um, afterwards he told me that uh, she was she was happy, you know. But she's not a selfish person, or you know, and you know, it's not about the, the, the prestige and the things. She has the hope that you. To this prize, the people um, in the world are paying attention to what's going on in Iran. And Reza Khandan, her husband, told me the same. He said to me, every prize, every you know, every announcement, every attention for the people, and and what's going on in Iran is so important. So um, yeah, she appreciated it to get this prize. It's it's. Nice to hear Reza Khandan's voice, but uh, but quite alarming in terms of the content of what he was saying yeah. there about her heart and her chest. Um, and and the news came out yesterday that she was refusing to take her heart medication. Uh, he he sounds exhausted, by the way. I mean, that, uh, not surprisingly, but uh, um, th- this has got to be incredibly difficult. She's in prison, and she's not doing well physically. Yeah, and at, at the same time. They're trying to attack the daughter of them, and in, they're just, they want to tire, tire them completely. You know, they, they want to exhaust them so much. And um, yeah, she's still talking. Natalie, as someone who's um, accompanied, as you said, uh, Nasrin Sotudeh uh, to court, uh, watching her defend others, uh, um, let me ask you about her, the charges and the, and the convictions uh, uh, on her, because from the outside, as someone who's lived outside of Iran for a lifetime, these charges and convictions are just, they just seem inexplicable, absurd. And, and then the yeah. sentencing of 40 years, 38 years, and lashes and this and that for what seems like a lawyer def- just defending others. I- in a nutshell, what can you tell us about this judiciary system in Iran and how we're supposed to make sense of this? Absurd. It's, you know, a lawyer who is fighting for human rights is getting 38 years in prison and 184 lashes. For what? She did just her job. The thing is that there's no, you know, Iran is always saying we have this democracy and so, but in a democracy, a judicial system is um, working considering 
loss. But in Iran, nobody is taking loss serious. Everything is, you know, they do what they want. Nobody is respecting the law. There is a law in Iran, but nobody is respecting this. And um, she was saying the same when she was talking with me in another interview. She said, look, um, what is bad hijab? There is a hijab or no hijab, but bad hijab. How? Where is the law for bad hijab? And that's Iran. So, you know, they're doing what they want. And um, they... You cannot you cannot count on the law you cannot count on your rights and that's this dangerous situation in this country you know there's this new uh documentary uh about, about nasreen and we've got the director jeff kaufman uh coming up in, in in a little while on this uh special she in this documentary uh, uh natalie at one point nasreen says we are not angry we are not hateful we will not allow them to spill more blood it's interesting. Uh, it would be understandable if she were to say, we are angry. Tell me about this approach of hers. What have you learned about the way Nasreen has acquitted herself through these recent years when she says, we're not hateful, but we will not allow them to spill more blood? She, look, it's hard to say because I saw her the last time two years ago and I don't want to speak it speak in her name but um, as I saw her she is hoping for Iran to to have more freedom for the people and um, to have a judicial system which is following the laws she doesn't want a regime change she's not the person who's saying I I don't know, you know, to, she's not this activist. She is just a lawyer and is fighting for the law and for the rights of the people. So I think that's very important. But the system is considering her as a um, threat to the national security. Why do they keep her in prison? You know, journalists like you uh, with global profiles are, are reporting on this. There's documentaries being made, an alternative Nobel Prize being awarded. Wouldn't it be prudent for the, the regime to actually free her because she's more trouble than it's worth to keep in prison? No, because I think that the system is in such a death end right now, as we saw what they did to Navid Afkari and all the imprisonments of other people. So recently we have a German-Iranian, um, 66 years old um, architect. She's, she's not an activist. She was just, um, you know, like posting maybe two posts of pro- uh, woman rights things and now she's in prison since um, two weeks nobody knows why so they're just um, they're making tabula rasa so they are just imprisoning everybody who can be maybe a danger to the security system and um, that I think you can see that um, the system is somehow collapsing before i let you go what, what what can you tell us about you've been in iran up until may of this year reporting from the tehran bureau of your broadcaster for for a few years now what what can you tell us about your sense of how nasreen sotudeh is seen by iranians in iran 
as I told you at the beginning, she is for them a brave woman. And um, yeah, I never heard something bad about her. You know, everybody is just um, thankful for her work and thankful that um, there's still a person who is fighting for the rights of Iranian people. Can I just ask you a personal question before you go? You, you know, you're you're of Iranian background yourself. You you I know you profoundly love the country and the people and the culture. Um, there there's this sense of déjà vu or plus ça change, plus ça la même chose. That the more things change, the more things stay the same. The hunger strike that brought Nasreen to international attention, the first one was in 2010. It's now 10 years mm-hmm. later, and she's in prison and she's fighting for her health. Uh, how how do you? Um, if you take off your journalist hat for a moment and just talk about yourself as, as someone who cares about this this country and people, how do you process the fact that this seems to just be going in circles? Which is not allowed for journalists to <laughs> to kick this away that you're a objective journalist. But um, yeah, uh, look, I'm 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 really um, every day what you say so touched and sad and um, yeah emotionally really in a in a I, I see the country and I see the people and I see this hopeless fight for from them every day and right now I'm writing a book um, about the last 40 years um, in Iran and uh, of Iran and my my work there and I saw and I was so frustrated while I was writing this book because it's like you see how the people struggled every, you know, five, ten years. So you had the student protest 1999, you had the Green Revolution, the Green Movement 2009, you had the protests 2019 again where they killed 1,500 people and you see the people are all the time trying to come out of the system to to get more freedom to get press freedom to get more rights and always the system is promising the people if you go to the next election you will get this you will get this and the people trusted the system so long and they went to the elections to give their vote to Khatami. They give again the vote to Musavi. Then they give again the vote to Rouhani. And at the end, they got nothing. And I think that this country, the people, the population is so now frustrated and they're not believing anything. So the next election will happen in March. I think they can put as a candidate the perfect Khatami in line and nobody will go to vote for him anymore. So the system is um, really in a crisis financially and also from his ideologic, nobody is believing in the, I cannot say nobody, but a lot of people lost their hope or their, their the thoughts of the Islamic Republic and the Islamic ideology. Natalie, it's uh, it's very special to speak to you again. I, I, I love hearing from you. I love learning from you. And I, I thank you so much for this. We'll look forward to the book. And um, I appreciate you coming on today. You're very welcome. Merci. Khodafis. Khodafis.
This is a Rook special, The Case for Nasreen. I'm Gian Gomeshi. And our website is rookmedia.com, where you can link to all of our previous episodes and uh, all of our different platforms, rookmedia.com. My next guest is someone well-positioned to speak to the legal dimensions of the Nasrin Sotudeh imprisonment in Iran. He is one of the most recognized Iranian stalwarts of the global focus on human rights and democracy, who refers to Nasrin as his dear friend and colleague. Abdul Karim Lahiji is a lawyer and human rights activist. He was elected as the president of the International Federation for Human Rights in 2013, having previously served as the the vice president from 1998 to 2013. He has also been the president of the League for the Defense of Human Rights in Iran since 1983. Mr. Lahiji is a former Confederation of Students activist and was the student representative in the National Front during the 1960s. And right now, Abdul Karim Lahiji joins me from Paris, France today. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Merci que vachtetoune be madadin. Mr. Lahiji, I know Nasrin Sotoudeh is a friend of yours and her imprisonment and suppression by authorities in Iran at various times and in various ways over the last two decades is not new to you. What can you tell us about the current situation and the official and unofficial pretexts for locking Nasrin up? این نکته رو یادآور بشم که اولین گروهی که خمینی بهشون حمله کرد و فحاشی کرد حقوقدان ها بودن درست یکی دو ماه بعد از انقلاب چرا؟ برای اینکه خمینی میخواست در ایران یک حکومتی رو برقرار کنه که با قانون با حقوق سر و کار نداشته باشه بنابراین حقوقدان وکیل دادگستری برای خمینی مثل دشمن بود و توجه داشته باشید که کانون وکلا مطابق قوانین ایران یک نهاد مستقل بود یعنی نان گورنمنتال ارگانیزیشن بود و آخرین انتخابات کانون وکلا در بهار سال 57 صورت گرفته بود و هر دو سال یک بار باید انتخابات تجدید میشد و یه هیئت مدیره جدیدی انتخاب میشدن سال 59 یعنی فقط یک سال و دو سه ماه بعد از انقلاب بهشتی که اون موقع رئیس دیوان کشور بود نامی نوشت به کانون وکلا یعنی به ما که شما حق ندارید انتخابات برگزار کنید و 17 سال کانون وکلا رو بستن بنابراین نسیل سدوده و تمام کسانی که برمان لویر برمان حقوقدان برمان وکیل دادگستری در ایران فعالیت میکردن صرف نظر از این که چقدر مشکلات برای اینا به وجود آوردن که بتونن پروانه بکارت بگیرن مثل نسرین که هشت سال در انتظار مونده بود بعدم که شروع به کار کردن انقدر مشکلات برایشون به وجود آوردن که دومین بار است که نسرین سدوده به زندان میفته بار اول بیشتر از سه سال در زندان بود بالاخره با فشار اتحادیه اروپا بود که نسرین آزاد شد ولی دیدید که چند سال بعد دو مرتبه براش پرونده دوم درست کردن بله. و الان متاسفانه بیشتر از دو سالی که نسرین در زندانی ولی آقای لهجی از خودتون الان گفتین که there have been thousands of political prisoners in Iran many of them lawyers many of them defending human rights why is the case of Nasrin Sotoudeh capturing the imagination of people around the world why is it particularly important ببینید برای جمهوری اسلامی متهم سیاسی is as the criminal مثل جنایتکاره 
بنابراین کسی که در تظاهرات بر ضد جمهوری اسلامی شرکت بکنه این آدم دشمن جمهوری اسلامی از انه نمی میگه این دشمنه بنابراین کسی حق نداره از دشمن دفاع کنه یعنی کسی که از دشمن دفاع کنه از از کامپلیس معاون اونجا جرمه بنابراین اینا از روز خود من بیشتر از دو سال نتونستم در ایران بمونم چرا؟ برای اینکه وکیل دو تا از کسانی بودم که در زندان بودن هیچ قانونی نمیتونه بگید که من هم در ارتکاب اون جرم با اون شریک بودم غیر از قانون جمهوری اسلامی یعنی غیر از منتلیته غیر از ذهنیت جمهوری اسلامی که وکیل رو شریک متهم میدونه بنابراین وقتی نسیم ستوده از یک خانومی که هجاب اجباری قبول نکرده دفاع میکنه همون خانوم رو محکوم میکنه هم نسیم ستوده رو برای اینکه میگه تو وقتی می از این دفاع میکنی یعنی اینکه برخلاف اون چیزی که من میگم میگم که این متهمه و بنابراین بعد محکوم بشه تو میخوای از اون دفاع بکنی چرا از اون دفاع میکنی بنابراین مسئولیت اعمال اون متوجه تو هم میشه But how do they... How do they justify this legally? You're a lawyer yourself. I mean, help me with this from the outside. Yani, as someone who's lived outside of Iran for a lifetime, the charges and convictions themselves seem bizarre or inexplicable, but the sentencing, 38 years in jail, it just seems unfathomable or if not outrageous. So in a nutshell, what can you tell us about how this is justified in the judiciary system? How, how do we make sense of this legally, or at least what do they say? ببینید در ایران جدیری سیستم وجود نداره رئیس قوه قضایی یعنی جدیری سیستم یه آخوندیه که این آخوند نه تحصیلات حقوقی کرده نه هیچ وقت سابقه قضایی به اون صورتی که در یک نظام قانون هست یعنی رول اف لو در ایران رول اف لو نیست در ایران اون چیزی که ولی فقیه بگه بالای قانونه حتی بالای قانون اساسی اسمش گشتن حکم حکومتی کسی هم که به عنوان رئیس قوه قضایی انتخاب میشه اون میگه ما اومدم عوامر ولی فقیه رو اجرا بکنم و اولین وظیفش هم میگه مبارزه با دشمنان انقلاب یعنی هر کسی که با جمهوری اسلامی مخالفت بکنه این به عنوان دشمن جمهوری اسلامی کسی هم که بخواد به عنوان وکیل دادگستری از اون دفاع بکنه این رو هم به عنوان کمپلیس اون به عنوان معاون اون به عنوان شریک جرم اون میدونن برای اینکه نسیم سدوده دیگه دو سال سه سال تو زندان نمونه دوازده سال تو زندان بمونه یا تا این مدت نسیم سدوده در زندان بمیره یا اینکه انقدر ناتوان بشه که بعد از اومدن از بیرون از زندان دیگه نتونه دفاع کنه yes. و الان من به عنوان کسی که شست ساله با حقوق سر کار داره میگم من نگران سلامتی نسیم هستم چون بر اثر اعتصاب قضاهای های متوالی که نسرین هم در زندان اول و هم در این زندان کرده الان نسرین دوچار ناراحتی قلبی هست yes. و با توجه به این که در زندان قرچک هم هستش و ما ما نمیدونیم که نسرین در روزهای آینده در ماهای آینده Well, we heard the news yesterday. I don't know if you, I, I'm assuming you heard that she is actually refusing to take her heart medication. Do, do, you, do you know anything personally about her current health? No, we only know that they said that they want to send a commission to the commission. The commission of the commission is also under the security of the security. Is it 
بعد از اون آیا اجازه میدن که نسرین یعنی حداقل نسرین رو برای یه مدتی آزادش میکنن که اون بتونه در بیرون از زندان خودش معالجه کنه یا اینکه ندا مرتبه او رو به بیمارستان منتقل میکنن چند روز اونجا نگه میدارن مثل آخرین بار که چند هفته پیش اتفاق افتاد و بعد هم تو مرتبه برمیگردن به زندان اون در حال دوازده سال زندان برای یک وکیل دادگستری یعنی اینکه در حال به شیوه های متوسل بشن که گفتم برای همیشه یا او در زندان بمونه و در زندان بمیره یا اینکه اگر هم بعد از دوازده سال از زندان آزاد بشه دیگه نتواند به کارش که دفاع از مظلومان هستش دو مرتبه ادامه بده When you say there's no judiciary system دستگاه قضایی نداریم Part of the paradox at work here Uh, part of the heartbreaking contradiction here is that Nasreen Sotudeh herself, like you, is a lawyer committed to law. Uh, so how do we make sense of even lawyers doing their job in a place that doesn't really respect law? non-governmental organization. یعنی کسایی که بخوان عضو هیئت مدنی یعنی بار اسوسییشن ایران داشته باشن اینها رو باید وزارت اطلاعات اول صلاحیتشون رو تایید بکنه به هم صورتی که در مورد مجلس قانونگذاری است بارها که وکلایی که از متهمای سیاسی دفاع میکردن خواستن برن تو هیئت مدیره کانون وکلا مثل عبدالفتاح سلطانی نگذاشتن بنابراین شبکه‌های امنیتی است که بعد بگن یک وکیلی صلاحیت داره اصلا توی برد وکلا بره یا نره من 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 حقوقدان میگم من واقعا با با نهایت تعصف میگم در ایران دیگه ما کارنوکلای مستقل نداریم چرا برای اینکه گفتم 17 سال کارنوکلا رو بستن تمام وکلای دادگستری یعنی وکلایی که خیلی شناخته شده بودیم دادگاه انقلاب پروانه وکالت ما رو باطل کرد آقای محمدی گیلانی بعد هم شروع کردن به تصفیه وکلا تمام کسانی که در حال به هر صورتی به عنوان ضد انقلاب بودند اینها رو تصفیه کردند وکلایی که در ارتباط با رژیم گذشته ممکن بود اتهامهایی باشه اونها رو تصفیه کردند وکلای غیر مسلمان وکلای باهایی تمام اینها رو تصفیه کردند و یک کانون وکلای 17 سال بعد وجود آوردند به این صورتی که الان هست بنابراین در ایران دیگه شغلی به عنوان وکالت که اون وکیل آزاد باشه دیگه وجود نداره کانه وکلا هم مثل قوه قضایی جمهوری اسلامی متاسفانه آقای لایجی when you say they they i mean they sentenced her to 38 years they're going to keep her in prison for at least 12 years and there's lashes and imprisonment and 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 you say that their reasons behind that will be to either if uh, uh, god willing this won't happen but either she dies in jail or that she just becomes irrelevant because she's taken away from the public stage for so long It, it occurs to me that that's not working for them. Uh, and I want to ask this question of everybody on this program today, but how is the regime weighing the costs of keeping Nasrin Sotoudeh detained? I mean, in a sense, it would seem prudent, given that she has become an international cause celebre, because, given that she has become somebody that people know of, given that she has become a symbol, that even for Machiavellian reasons, they would want to release her and think that she can do less harm than when she is in prison why keep her detained 
ببینید در اکتبر سال 2012 پارلمان اروپا جایزه ساخاروف رو به نصرین و جعفر پناهی داد بله. نصرین اون موقع زندان بود جعفر پناهی هم از زندان نبود ولی اونم در حال نمیتونه سفر بکنه بنابراین من به عنوان وکیل و دوست نصرین ستوده به پارلمان اروپا رفتم دختر جعفر پناهی هم از طرف پدرش بود و اونجا خب جایزه ساخاروف رو ما گرفتیم نگرفتیم فقط دیپلمش رو گرفتیم ولی در ملاقاتی که اون موقع با توجه به اینکه ما آخرهای دوره احمدی نژاد هستیم هنوز سانکشن ها و در حال محدودیت های روی شورای امنیت روی ایران هست و ایران فقط مشغول گفتگو با اتحادیه اروپا است بلکه بتونن یه راه پیدا کنن و خلاصه اتحادیه اروپا براشون خیلی مهم بود بره. اون موقع قرار بود یه گروهی از اتحادیه اروپا برن به ایران و آقای مارتین شولز رئیس و پارلمان اروپا به من گفت که ما جایزه نصرین رو هم میدیم که ببرن ایران یا برن در زندان ملاقاتش کنن یا بیرون زندان و آقای مارتین شولز به من قول داد که اگر این اجازه رو قبل از اینکه این هیئت به ایران بره ما نگیریم من نمیگذارم یعنی آقای مارتین شولز گفت من به عنوان رئیس پارلمان اروپا سفر اینها رو به ایران کنسل میکنم و این کار هم کرد مدت ها این موضوع گذشت و چون میخواستم با اتحادیه اروپا به یه توافق برسن که بالاخره بعد رسید به مسئله توافق راجب نوکلر و این چیزا مجبور شدن اومدن بعد از سه سال و سه ماه با توجه به اینکه بیشتر از نصف زندان کشیده بود نسلین رو آزاد کردن ولی تمام این سالها برای اینکه من میدونم ما با چه رژیم کریمینلی مردم ایران سر و کار دارن تنها وسیله تماس من با نسلین ستوده از طریق اسکایپ بود هفته یک ما ما با هم یک ساعت دو ساعت صحبت میکردیم <تصفيق> من مخفر بهش صحبت میکردم میگفتم خانم شما هنوز متاسفانه نمیفهمید جمهوری اسلامی نمیشتاسید من از جمهوری اسلامی از شما بهتر میزم مواظب خودت باش مواظب... اینها نمیگذارند یه وکیل دادگستری مثل تو که بتونه در ایران دفاع بکنه به کارش ادامه بده من هر روز در انتظار این بودم نسیم سود دو مرتبه دستگیر بشه بالاخره دستگیر هم شد خب موقعی که نسیم با زندان بود من اومدم به تورنتو دانشگاه یورک به نسیم دکترا داده بود من وقتی داشتم پیام نسیم که از داخل زندان فرستاده بود میخوندم فقط اون روز گریه نکردم خودم نگه داشتم که بتونم پیام نسرین رو بخونم میدونید ما هرگز همدیگر فقط از طریق اسکایپ همدیگر دیدیم ولی من فکر میکنم نسرین و استادگی رسمین استواری نسرین it's not an example it's an, it's, it's an exception یعنی توی ایران وکیلی مثل نسرین سوده من نمیتونم بگم وجود نداره ولی متاسفانه ده نفر هم وجود نداره میدونی بنابراین حساسیتی که جمهوری اسلامی رو نصر سوده داره به حد نیست که الان ما من نمیخوام همه اقداماتی که من دارم میکنم بگم ولی به جایی نبوده که من طی این ماها ما نامه ننوشته باشم به رئیس پارلمان اروپا به رئیس جمهور فرانسه فلان که فقط یه کاری کنید که اجازه بدن نسرین بیاد بیرون خودشو معالجه کنه دو مرتبه برگرد زندان تا حالا من نتونستم نتیجه بگیرم
But when you, وقتی که میگه میگی که من میشناسم رژیم ایران میشناسم جمهوری اسلامی رو میشناسم. Do they? Maybe this is a naive, a silly question, but do they not care that the New York Times is writing editorials about Nasrin Sotoudeh no, or no. Amnesty International or the new documentary that's going to come out on a lot of people? Do they just not care about any of that? حتما نکر حتما نکر جمهوری اسلامی یک قانون داره اسمش از زور زور و فقط هم زور میفهمه بنابراین جمهوری اسلامی اولین کاری که با جامعه اینترنشنال کامیونیتی کرد چی بود گروگانگیری بود گروگانگیری یعنی الان شما ببینید در زندانهای ایران دهها کسانی هستن که دابل نشنالیسی دارن تمام اینا گروگان جمهوری اسلامی هستن ایرانیان امریکن ایرانیان فرنچ ایرانیان استرا 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 خب جمهوری اسلامی اینا رو نگه داشته و فقط با تمام دولت ها هم میدونن با چه رژیمی زر کار دارن میدونن اینا استش هستن اوتاج هستن میدونن اینا ولی جمهوری اسلامی فقط زور میگه و فقط هم زور میفهمه اون وقتی که مردم ایران قدرت داشته باشن که این رژیم رو ساقط کنن اون وقت از جمهوری اسلامی دست برمیداره ببینید ما تجربه رژیم شاه رو هم داریم دیگه یه جامعه بسته رو وقتی بخواد یه خورو بازش بکنید خب ممکنه سیل بیاد همه چی رو ببره یعنی جمهوری اسلامی از روز اول با مردم ایران با انترنشنال کمونیتی با دنیا با زور برخورد کرده الان هم همینه با زور مونده اگر جمهوری اسلامی زور رو بخواد ورداره اگر دیسپنالتی رو بخواد ورداره اگر تارچر رو بخواد ورداره اگر ایمپریزنتمنت رو بخواد ورداره دیگه نمیتونه ببینید من پنجاب و پنج سالی که آیم از لویر البته که کار نمی کنم آدم این ریتایت بلی پنجاب و پنج سال من افتخار می کنم که یک همکار من اسمش از نسلین ستوده It's my honor It's my honor همین چیز دیگه نمیتونم بگم و امیدوارم که تا زنده هستم برای اینکه آیم ایتی من دیگه پیرمرد هستم امیدوارم تا من زنده هستم ببینم که نسرین از زندان آزاد شده و سلامتی خودش رو بیشتر از این در خطر نیندازم. Abdulkarim Lahiji, I thank you so much for this today. Uh, I hope I see you soon and I thank you for the words. I hope so. Khodafiz. Khodafiz.
This is a Rook special, the case for Nasreen. Well, we've heard about Nasreen Sotudeh from a human rights, political, social, and journalistic perspective. Now for an ethical view. My next guest is a world-renowned author, philosopher, and academic who was part of an international campaign to support Nasreen Sotudeh with the Penn International Organization a few years ago. Dr. Ramin Jahambeglu is a political philosopher and presently the executive director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies and the Vice Dean of the School of Law at Jindal Global University, Delhi, India. He has taught and lectured around the world and is the author of numerous highly acclaimed books. Ramin Jahanbeglu has had his own experiences as a political prisoner in Iran. In 2006, Ramin was arrested at Tehran airport and charged with preparing a velvet revolution in Iran. He was placed in solitary confinement for months and finally released on bail. Ramin Jahanbeglu joins me from Toronto today. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Very nice to have you back on the show, Ramin. I'm okay, and yourself? Thank you very much for having me again. Listen, uh, I, I know that the, the case of Nasrin Sotudeh and the saga of Nasrin Sotudeh is not far from your mind or heart. You've been working on this for years. I, I want you, if you can, to give us a, a perspective on, on the Nasrin Sotudeh detainment from an ethical standpoint, uh, which is your wheelhouse. But, but first, let me just ask, there have been thousands of political prisoners in Iran or prisoners of conscience. You were one of them. Why is the case of Nasrin Sotudeh particularly important? Well, I think the other cases are important too, but um, the particularity of Nasrin Sotudeh is that I think she has introduced um, two principal characteristics in terms of a civic actor and a supporter of human rights. Uh, and one of it is one of these aspects is uh, truth seeking. I think, which is uh, she has been reevaluating uh, the, the the question of truth in Iranian society, and the other one being uh, her criticism of institutionalized violence, uh, especially the condemnation of uh, death penalty. Uh, and I think this is this very important because not every prisoner actually has been uh, criticizing death penalty from inside the prison as she has been doing it and not every prisoner has been actually trying to reevaluate uh, the idea of truth in Iranian society now and to be a little bit more clear i think that um, so today has been uh, through uh, the, the past 10 years she has been promoting an element of i would call civic maturity in iranian society and i think especially uh, fighting against authoritarianism but um, she also represents the image of a female human rights lawyer with a moral capital uh, you know i mean uh, we talk um, very often about social capital human capital but moral capital is also very important for uh, civic actors and nonviolent activists and i think sutude is somebody who has this moral capital because we can see that um, her social strategy uh, as you said correctly is the primacy of the ethical on the political uh, she is of course a political prisoner but she is not a typical political prisoner she is what we call a prisoner of opinion but she's also a lawyer uh, but and she has a very clear idea of uh, the ethical i would say in politics and this is somehow what i would call a gandhian moment of an iranian prisoner uh you know i mean um, a what uh, a what moment 
a Gandhian moment. A Gandhi moment, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she fasted like Gandhi against the violence practiced in Iranian prisons. Uh, she actually uses the techniques of nonviolence uh, against the establishment of death penalty in Iran. And all these are very important because you can see here uh, a kind of novelty in the, in the way she fights uh, against uh, oppression and against injustice. And um, I think that uh, she has a very acute sense of solidarity with uh, Iranian civic actors, with other jailed people. Uh, that's why she fasted, actually. Uh, she has um, um, an idea of nonviolence, certainly, as a mode of resistance against unjust laws. And without going too far, I'm not saying that Nasir Sudeh is another Gandhi or uh, MLK and Martin Luther King Jr., but I think that uh, uh, she has, um, even as a human rights lawyer, she knows uh, that an, an unjust law is no law at all. So hmm. many times she opposes the idea of justice to the idea of law. And that's, I think, very uh, new. Uh, in 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 her sense. Okay, and let me let me stop you there because yeah. not surprisingly, you've said a lot that uh, yeah. is is uh, that I'd I'd like to chew on. Let me try and deconstruct it one point at a time. Mm. Reevaluating the concept of truth in Iran. What does mm. that mean? Well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, first of all, truth seeking about uh, laws, about the oppression of law. And uh, um, I think that uh, one of the, um, uh, certainly the sins and uh, the problems of uh, Iranian society and especially Islamic regime is lying. And uh, people like Sutude, I think what uh, they come out and they try to fight this, uh, the, the institutionalization of lie in Iranian society and especially in Iranian regime. So uh, truth-seeking is uh, very simply, as has been done by many activists in, in the past 50 years around the world, is just uh, saying what uh, should be said about uh, human rights abuses, but also about the problem of uh, um, oppression of women and many other uh, aspects. And so today, I think she has been a forerunner, one of the forerunners, but uh, I think in today's uh, Iran, maybe one of the forerunners uh, in this aspect. Mm. You talked a moment ago about using law to address justice. And I was saying this to Mr. Lahiji in, in the last half hour, who, of course, is a well-known attorney dealing with human rights uh, issues yeah. himself for many years. When I asked him what to make of these laws in Iran, he said something like, well, there, there really isn't the rule of law in Iran. It's basically a sham. And one of the interesting paradoxes that emerges then is that Nasrin Sotudeh, like many mm. ethical lawyers, is actually very committed to the law and going by the book. So how to fight for and apply the law in a place that has a totally dysfunctional judicial system is a is a Rubik's Cube. How are we supposed to make sense of that? Well, you know, uh, many people forget that somebody like Mandela or Gandhi, they were lawyers too. I mean, they studied law. And uh, they respected law, but uh, somebody like Mandela was fighting against apartheid uh, uh, in the name of justice and a law which has turned into its opposite. So I think it's the same question in Iran. I mean, uh, what uh, Sutude is fighting against is the very essence of unlawfulness and illegitimacy of violence. I mean, uh, that's why I say that there's a primacy of ethical on the political because um, violence can be justified politically and oh, God knows that every day is, uh, uh, leaders around the world, they justify the, the violence they use against their citizens, including the Iranian regime. Uh, but uh, from a civic actor, from a human rights lawyer, 
human rights lawyer like uh, Nassim Sotoudeh is the most important is to show that this violence is illegitimate, morally illegitimate, the unlawfulness is morally illegitimate, and even if they try to justify it. So that's why I say that um, in her work, you can uh, trace a moral capital, you know, what we call a moral capital, meaning that uh, there's a level of a sense of responsibility about the present and the future of Iran. I mean, I think that uh, people like Sutude, what they teach future generations or younger generations today by just looking at them is that they, they give a moral exemplarity, uh, you know, an example of uh, an ethical person that they look and they say, oh, this person, uh, she's different, she doesn't lie, she's fighting for uh, justice and law, and she's not misusing law for her own benefits. So um, I think this is what makes her different uh, um, from many others. Uh, the fact that she's very conscious about what she's doing, and that's why she, she returns to prison all the time, because she's fighting about this untruthfulness and uh, indecency uh, in, uh, in the Iranian uh, society and Iranian regime in general, and um, tries to give this sense of responsibility, which I think goes uh, very much... Uh, with uh, this uh, passion of ethics, I would say, uh, in Iranian society, which is very necessary. Tell me about this commitment, Nasreen's commitment to nonviolence. And on a, I don't know, on a, on a grassroots, on a granular level, how is that important in the context of contemporary Iran? I think it's very important because we have two levels of teaching it. You know, one level is uh, the, the work I do personally, which is more of a work of an author or a theorist. And uh, uh, another is uh, um, the work of uh, civic actors like Sutude and human rights lawyers like her, uh, is that they maybe they don't know as much about what has happened in the in the history of nonviolence, but uh, they they have a sense of this uh, nonviolence and they have a sense of uh, solidarity with the sufferings of others. And again, I go back and I say a sense of justice, which is so important. Um, one of the um, aspects, very important aspects of nonviolent uh, uh, democratic theory is that you consider the moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. This has been practiced all around the world uh, in the past hundred years. And I think that Sutude does the same thing, actually. She morally, uh, she has this, she gives herself this moral um, expertise and moral actually action of disobeying unjust laws and trying to replace them by new virtues, I would say, and new values. Uh, and that's important. And you, you can see it in her action. I mean, uh, um, uh, she puts her life in danger maybe to be, to symbolize this new virtue, this new value uh, of nonviolence, even in Iranian uh, prisons. She seems to have, I mean, Nasreen Sotuda has done a lot. Um, well, she's done a lot in her life and, and as an activist and as a mother and as a, et cetera. But mm -hmm. as a lawyer, the areas she's focused on, um, children, children's rights, human rights, women's rights, and also capital punishment, um, yes. which is something that's very important to you, I know. Absolutely. How important is, is the stand that she has taken um, opposing capital punishment in Iran? Uh, how important is that? culturally and how much is that one of the reasons why her name and what she is doing is resonating so much internationally i think it's uh, her name is resonating more and more and uh, of course you have uh, 
many other lawyers, human rights lawyers, the people like Lai Ji for the past 40 years, 50 years of his life, he has been fighting against death penalty also. But, uh, you know, I mean, there are two levels of doing that. Uh, Iranians uh, and many others, they're doing it from outside the prisons and some people like Sotudeh are doing it from inside the prisons. So I think that you need more courage, more moral courage, I would say, to do it from inside the prison because there's more pressure on you and you might even uh, be uh, the victim of death penalty yourself, uh, like Sutudeh. But um, I, I, I appreciate actually her courage and I think that this is very important because once again, she's putting into question through the uh, showing, uh, by showing the illegitimacy of uh, the capital punishment She's also giving um, a symbolic, uh, you know, gesture about uh, how you can fight it from inside and not, not just from outside. So she, she f gives us this fe feeling that she has this sense of responsibility, even as a prisoner inside uh, the Iranian prisons. I, I don't have the latest uh, statistics in front of me, or uh, I would have to check them, but I know that I've often cited the devastating reality that uh, Iran is the, the number one country in terms of political executions in the world. Uh, mm. is, is fighting for an end to capital punishment a, a pipe dream in a place like Iran? I think so, but uh, going back to today, I think that uh, what I, I like in her work and I think is very important is that she's not only fighting for the present of Iranian society, but also for the future generations. Because actually the abolishment of, uh, you know, the uh, capital punishment is not for today's Iran. And it's not going to happen uh, tomorrow, but uh, maybe eventually next few generation might see that, but they have to be ready for it. And they might, they should not really repeat what has been done in today's Iran uh, by asking for more blood or for, uh, you know, more punishments in uh, through the death uh, penalty. So I think that today is, is somebody who belongs also to the future of Iran uh, because uh, she's fighting for this, uh, you know, uh, against unlawfulness and illegitimacy of violence, not only in today's Iran, but also in the future of Iran. Do you have any sense of um, what, what outside uh, lobbying or um, collective action um, what what effect that can have on the Iranian authorities, the Iranian regime at this point? I have a, I have a flashback as I'm talking to you to 14 mm. years ago to 2006, where um, I was amongst those walking outside and uh, campaigning for your release um, when you were uh, detained in Iran, and there was uh, many of us around the world, but certainly here in Toronto, who were protesting to try and you know hope that our voices would somehow be heard. I, I don't know if your release had anything to to do with uh, uh, campaigns mm -hmm. that happened outside of Iran. But, but you know, when you're involved in something like the, the International Pen Campaign a few years ago, or people like Margaret Atwood are saying, you know, this is the next Mandela, we need to support her. Do you think that that has any actual effect on the regime? Oh, immensely. I think it's very important. I, we, we, I think we should con continue with the campaigns uh, for all the prisoners, and especially do those who are also well-known, I mean, to... Uh, other countries and uh, outside people, but uh, I, this is very, very important. I mean, it was important for my liberation, my freedom, but I think it's, it's also very important for Sotudeh and other prisoners. 
and we should certainly do that and try to mobilize ourselves. I, I'm not just talking about the Iranian diaspora, which I think is important to do that, but I think also in terms of uh, all those who know today, for example, what we did with Penn Canada and the Penn um, International, and uh, and and I've, I've seen that in the past few months uh, that um, in Paris and in other cities of the world there has been campaigns for Sotude, which uh, not necessarily has been done by Iranians but by French people or by others. And that's, I think, is very, very important. So, but what I are the mechanics of that in terms of actually creating change? Not not just in freeing Nasreen, but creating change, Rami. Because in the immediate, it doesn't seem to be working. I mean, she's back in jail. She's you yes. know, no hunger strike, no protestation. Nothing seems to stop the regime on its uh, mission to. I mean, they've charged her, they've convicted her, for, sentenced her to thirty-eight years, and uh, <laughs> you know, which is just absurd based on even the even yes. the charges that they they came up with um and so there seems to be some calculation there where they you know she's more valuable to them in prison than than outside of it even if she's becoming this uh, cause celebre around the world so if she is to become a symbol like a mandela how would that actually create the 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 winds of change that many would want in iran if uh, if she becomes a uh, i think uh, a symbol like mandela certainly she would be a ch- wind of change um, I'm not sure uh, up to uh, how point, uh, what point she can become a new Mandela. I mean, uh, unfortunately, to the, in today's world, you don't have too many Mandelas. I mean, we have a lot of prisoners around the world, but we don't have many Mandelas. Maybe because, uh, um, um, uh, you know, people are more concerned with all the problems, including right, ra- right now the pandemic and uh, less concerned about injustice around the world and the rise of populism and other things uh, and uh, totalitarian regimes around the world. But um, I think that that um, should not dissuade us for uh, to continue. I mean, those who really believe in, uh, like myself, in being civic actors, in working, putting their pen in the service of, you know, mm-hmm. justice, mm-hmm. they have to do that. I mean, um, somebody like you also, I think it has to do that because, you know, this um, ethics is part of our work. I mean, I, I think it's, it's the most important part of our work. It's not really success, which is important. What has always been important for artists, writers, uh, uh, and others, uh, it's, uh, I think is it has been the work of ethics and where the work of solidarity and to fight for justice, uh, not only in one's own country, but also for others. Uh, I mean, I've been practicing that since the age of 17. Uh, so I think that um, it's very important to have, uh, to, to back people like Sutude because uh, she's part of our future, as I said. And uh, we should not lose them, and uh, they need uh, our support. And uh, hopefully, I think that um, um, Iranian diaspora and others, they will support her. Before I let you go, Rabindi, um, when, you, when you think about cases like this um, and the pressure that the, that the authorities are, are not only putting on Nasreen but on her family, uh, yes. They recently ar- arrested her 20-year-old daughter for what they said was some kind of dispute argument with a prison guard, and uh, she's out on bail currently. But uh, um, this is obviously devastating for the family, and they they, they use the fear um, tactics with the family as well as we know. Uh, you've been there. Uh, you, this this had that effect on on your family. Um, you clearly would have an empathy for this situation. Where does your 
Where does your mind go when you think about Nasreen? No, I think it's very difficult. Yes, I've been through that. My family has been through that. I think it's very, very difficult. And uh, I really hope that uh, she's not in a miserable situation right now because they've changed her prison also. And uh, she's in a worse prison right now. And uh, I, I, I know that uh, a lot of pressure is on her. And, uh, and um, certainly I think that um, when, though the information doesn't get to you very easily, but eventually if you get to see your wife or your husband or somebody, a member of your family, and he or she tells you that, uh, well, you know, there is people are fighting for you uh, around the world. I think that that uh, reconforts you. I mean, it's, uh, it's it somehow gives you hope, and it it shows you that you're on the right track, and that's very important for a a prisoner like Sutude and uh, other prisoners. I mean, the the fact that they know that they're not alone, and others are thinking about them and fighting for them, and somehow they're waiting for them to be free. Ramin Jahan Beglu, as ever, I uh, so much appreciate this. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is a Rook special, the case for Nasreen. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity coming to you on Telegram, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can link to any of those platforms or all of them and see our previous episodes at rookmedia.com. Well, we're honored to have our next guest join us as she has been at the center of so much that is dear to Nasreen Sotudeh's mission around democracy and justice. Mehrangiza Kaur is a leading attorney, writer, and activist working towards the promotion of democracy, rule of law, and human rights within the framework of Islamic law. She was one of the first women attorneys to oppose the Islamization of gender relations following the revolution of 1979. Mehrangiz has been an active public defender in Iran's civil and criminal courts and has lectured extensively both in Iran and abroad on political, legal, and constitutional reform, promotion of civil society and democracy, and on dismantling legal barriers to women's and children's rights. In the year 2000, she was arrested in Iran without any guarantee of defense and sentenced to four years' detention for taking part in an academic conference in Berlin on political and social reform in Iran. Merangisa Kar is now based in Washington, D.C., and she joins me from Toronto today. Hello. Salam, salam. Salam. Thank you so much for coming on the program. And uh, I will ask the questions in English, but uh, however you wish to respond in Farsi or English is, is totally fine. Unfortunately, it's not an easy subject matter for today. There, there have been thousands of political prisoners, as you know, in Iran. Uh, you were one of them, and devastating stories, all worthy of being told. But why is the case of Nasrin Sotudeh particularly important? 
دلایل زیادی داره که یکی از اونهای نسک نسرین ستوده خیلی خوب شخص خودش تونسته موضوع مبارزه مدنی خودش رو در جهان بشناسونه به این معنی که هر بار که در زندان بوده حرکتی داشته و از درون زندان پیامی رو به بیرون منتقل کرده که این پیام تناسب داشته با آرمان خودش و به همین دلیل توانسته این پیام به سراسر دنیا برسه And why do those messages, do you think, resonate so loudly with the international community in this case? مهمترین پیامش این بوده که برای به دست آوردن اون زندگی عادلانه‌ای که مورد نظر و علاقه ایرانیان هست و شاید میشه گفت که یکی از انگیزه های انقلاب اونها بوده در سال پنجاب و هفت فقط با تن ندادن به تسلیم میسر میشه به این معنی که باید مقاومت رو ادامه داد و بدون مقاومت مدنی چیزی در این حکومت تغییر پیدا نمیکنه Let me ask you a bit about how the authorities in Iran, the the regime, uh, the rule of law, in as much as we could call it that, um, deals with situations, with imprisonment, with situations like this. One of them is to implicate the whole family. Uh, there's a new documentary about Nasreen, and in it, the, the writer and human rights activist Taqid Rahmani says, dictators and governments benefit from putting families under pressure. And so we've recently heard about the arrest of Nasreen's 20-year-old daughter, Mehraveh, for an alleged argument or dispute with a prison guard. Does it surprise you that such tactics are being employed? این تجربه رو دارم منتها در اون زمان ما امکاناتمون مثل حالا نبود یعنی شبکه های اجتماعی وجود نداشت ترس وجود داشت از علنی کردن مسائل و حتی به ما گفته می شد که اگر علنی کنید ما شما رو میکشیم برای خود ما این اتفاق در خانواده ما افتاد به این معنی که من هدف بودم هدف سرکوب بودم و همونطور که شما گفتید به علت شرکت در یک کنفرانس و گفتن اینکه مثلا قانون اساسی جمهوری اسلامی باید تغییر بکنه اما بعدا دختر بزرگ من قربانی بود منتها اون رو هیچ کس ازش خبر نداشت جز خود ما و بعد که من از کشور برای معالجه خارج شدم همسر من سیامک پرزند تا حدی زیر فشار قرار گرفت که به طور کلی دیگه میشه گفت 
زندگی خانوادگی ما رو متلاشی کردن بنابراین وقتی در جایی متوجه میشن که موضوع خیلی جدیه و بایستی به صورت خانوادگی سرکوب بشه اون فرد اینا حتما این کار میکنن بعضی وقتا کسی رو میکشن و بعد خانوادش رو کاملا محروم نگه میدارن از اینکه دادخواهی بکنن و مرعوبشون میکنن به این معنی که بهشون میگن مثلا اگر حالا یک پسر دیگه دارین یک فرزند دیگه دارین به همون قناعت کنین وگرنه اون رو هم از دست میدین بله so using the tactic of fear yes. uh, hasn't changed even بله. when even when you've got somebody already in prison فقط علنی شده قبلا علنی نبود ولی حالا یه امکاناتی به وجود اومده و به هر حال فعالان ایرانی هم تشخیص دادن که باید موضوع رو به هر قیمتی علنی بکنن پس میشه گفت تکتیکیه که این تکتیک داره کار میکنه برای اینکه دادخواهی قربانیان در درون کشور اساسا یک موضوع غیر ممکنیه position to answer um, as much as anybody uh, and that is that uh, to not only think of Nasreen as a symbol or somebody active for human rights in Iran but uh, as a symbol of the strength of women in Iran it 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 has been said regularly now that the leading agents of social change of activism in Iran are women And in the case of Nasreen, we see one of Iran's most distinguished human rights lawyers as a woman, and women are at the forefront of human rights defenders in Iran. That's interesting in the context of Iran's patriarchal culture. What, what does this say to us about the women of Iran and their role in the broader struggle for basic political and civil rights in the country? اولین حمله که حکومت جدید که هنوز هم حکومت نهادین شده ای نبود و شخص آقای خمینی هدفش رو حقوق زنان قرار داد یعنی حقوقی که تا اون لحظه زنان به دست آورده بودند پیش از انقلاب یعنی به جای اینکه به علت مشارکت وسیع اونها در انقلاب به زنان چیزی بده از زنان همه اون چیزهایی را که در دوران پیش از انقلاب از نظر قانونی به دست آورده بودن اونها را ازشون گرفت خب به علاوه آزادی های اجتماعی که مثلا حق انتخاب پوشش بود که سالیان سال بود که زنان ایرانی این حق را داشتند و هجاب را به صورت اجباری بر زنان تحمیل کرد در نتیجه میشه گفت که هم نخستین حمله به حقوق زن بلافاصله بعد از انقلاب اتفاق افتاد و هم ایجاد یک اپوزیسیون مدنی اولین اپوزیسیون مدنی در ایران رو زنان به وجود آوردن زیرا که در برابر حجاب اجباری نه فقط در تهران بلکه در سراسر ایران ایستادن و متاسفانه هنوز این ایستادگی اونجور که باید شرح تاریخی داده نشده 
چون فقط در تهران نبود حتی در شهرستان ها بعضی از دانش آموزان بعضی از پرستاران کشته هم شدن در این را بنابراین باید گفت که علت این که میبینیم در حال حاضر هم تعداد اکتیویست ها و فعالان برای دموکراسی خواهی برای هر گونه تغییر زنان هستند این است که حکومت سرکوب رو با زنان شروع کرد سلب آزادی های اجتماعی رو با زنان شروع کرد و ادامه داد تا الان که ما داریم با هم دیگه حرف میزنیم میشه گفت که این اعتراض و نارضایتی به صورت نسلی یعنی از نسل من منتقل شده به نسل نسرین ستوده از نسل نسرین ستوده منتقل میشه به نسل مهراوه و همینطور میشه گفت که یک مبارزه تاریخی نسلی شده برای زنان و زنان ظرفیت سیاسی تغییر پیدا کردند و به همین دلیل است که حکومت نسبت به کمترین حرکت سیاسی اعتراضی زنان خیلی حساسه و متوجه شده که بهتر اونا را اصلا در زندان ها هم از یکدیگر جدا نگه داره تا به هم نپیوندن. Well, let me ask you then how they do that in particular using the law or the law as it's applied which I, I have trouble understanding. We just had uh, uh, Abdul Karim Lahiji on and he basically said there really isn't a law, you know. Uh, they, it, it's it's so haphazard in terms of the way it's applied. But but let me ask you about how it, it is it is applied to women and how to try to make sense of it. One of the charges that Nasrin Sotoudeh has been convicted on is encouraging prostitution. I was trying to get my head around this to even understand where that would come from. I'm guessing this is connected to her support of women not wearing the hijab in public. So so where exactly in Sharia law does it say that that is tantamount to prostitution or does it? Man Islam shinas nistam, vali ta un andazeyi ke midunam aslan ma hamchin harfi dar Islam nadarim, na در متون اسلامی به صورت سریح داریم و نه در تفاسیری که فقیهان دیگری غیر از فقیهانی که الان در جمهوری اسلامی خب مقام دارن پول دارن همه چیز دارن از اسلام ارائه میدن هجاب یک توصیه است در قرآن و بسیاری از فقیهان هم این را قبول دارن ولی متاسفانه فقیهانی که رادیکال نگاه میکنند به زن اینها تفسیرهای دیگری از هجاب به دست میدند و میگویند که توصیه نیست بلکه یک امر قهری و اجباری اما اینکه بی بندوباری باشه کسی که میگه هجاب اجباری درست نیست یا یا کسی که ایستادگی میکنه مثل نسرین ستوده یا همه ما همه ما در پرونده هامون در نظام امنیتی ایران این رو داریم که ما میخواهیم بی بندوباری غربی رو در ایران اشاعه بدیم فحشا رو در ایران اشاعه بدیم کما اینکه حتی از شوهر من خواستند در ضمن اقاریر اجباری یعنی القا کردن بهش مجبورش کردن که در برابر دوربین های صدا و سیما بگه که 
همسر من مهرنگیز کار میخواست بیبندوباری غربی رو در کشور اشاعه بده این یک امر خوددرآوردیه یک موضوعیه که اصلا واقعیتی در اسلام به نظر من تا اونجایی که من حرفای اسلام شناسا رو شنیدم آه. یا خوندم وجود نداره اینا خودسرانه تفاسیر فقیهانیه که به حکومت رسیدن و بسیار منفعت میبرن از این حکومت مرهنگیز with respect to the hijab issue Nasrin Sotudeh has said As long as it is in their hands, the, Ira- the Iranian authorities, the regime, to decide one day the hijab is compulsory or one day we can remove it, our decisions will always depend on them. But if we succeed through our efforts to gain our freedom of choice of clothing, it will be permanent freedom. Can you explain what you think she means by that? hijab, hijab دلخواه خودشون هجاب رو انتخاب میکنن احترام میذارم ولی وقتی که اجباری باشه یک نمادیست از سلطه نمادیست از سلطه کسی که اون هجاب رو مجبور کرده زن داشته باشه ممکنه که حالا این اجبار از طرف شوهر باشه خب بازم میشه گفت نشانه سلطه شوهر بر زن حالا اگر که حکومت به جای شوهر این کار کرده باشه یا به جای برادر فرض بکنید یا افراد مرد خانواده باز مفهومش اینه که حکومت سلطش بر اون زن خیلی زیاده یعنی بیشتر از شهروندان مرده پس میتونه سمبولیک به صورت نمادین وقتی که هجاب اجباری اعلام بشه از طرف یک حکومتی مفهومش این باشه که زن شهروند مساوی با شهروند مرد نیست و حقوقش هم نمیتونه مساوی باشه با حقوق مرد این در این باره البته سخنان و تأکید نسرین صحیحه و موضوعی است که ما همه بر سر اون توافق و اجماع داریم advocacy that has generated you might say the most adverse reaction by the regime's judiciary is her work in representing victims of child abuse uh, Nasrin and her fellow attorney Giti Purfazel uh, who is also in prison now were sum- summoned numerous times on complaints made by suspected or even convicted child abusers and also by the judiciary for speaking out about these cases. Shouldn't the regime be supporting child advocates? I mean, that seems like a basic kind of thing. How do we make sense of that? The government of Iran has made the Islamic Convention of the government of Iran. It was signed in the 70s in Iran. But و تعهدات اون مثل همه تعهدات بین المللی پایبندی نداره هم خانم پرفازل گیتی و هم نسرین ستوده و هم دیگر فعالان حقوق زن و حقوق کودک بسیار نگران هستند از قوانینی که در ایران وجود داره چون همونطور که میدونید منبع قانونگذاری 
در این نظام سیاسی شریعت و بر پایه اون اینها سن فرض بفرمایید ورود زنان به مسئولیت کیفری رو نه سال هجری قمری که میشه تقریبا هشت سال و نیم شمسی قرار دادن و سن ورود پسران به قلم روی مسئولیت کیفری رو پانزده سالگی حالا که ما هرگز این قوانین رو پیش از انقلاب نداشتیم سن ورود به مسئولیت کیفری هیچده سالگی بود و برای دختر و پسر اصلا نباید تفاوت داشته باشه در هیچ سیستمی ولی متاسفانه این یک مورد اجهاف به حقوق کودک موارد بسیار زیاد دیگری هم وجود داره مثل اینکه پدر میتونه بچهشو بکشه بدون اینکه مجازات بشه و بسیاری یا تنبیه میتونه بکنه در حد قانون میگه در حد متعارف و خب در حد متعارف و ما چجوری میتونیم بفهمیم یعنی چی right. یه وقتی میشه شلاق زدن یه وقتی میشه خب حالا اصلا زیر تنبیه کشته بشه اون بچه بازم چون پدره یا جد پدری مجازاتی نداره در حالی که مادر فقط باید ازادار باشه و هیچ گونه در این موضوع حقی نداره خلاصه وضعیت حقوق کودک به هیچ وجه بهتر از وضعیت حقوق زن نیست منتها خب کودک هنوز قدرت اونو نداره در وضعیتی که قدرت اونو نداره که با صدای بلند حرف بزنه و اکتیویست بشه و از این وضعیت ابراز نارضایتی بکنه مرنگیز you're a lawyer yourself you've been a tireless campaigner for human rights and promoting democracy in Iran you've been imprisoned yourself you know that sometimes it seems as though this regime over the last four decades is sensitive to uh, international attention or seems to react and take heed when there is a global concern. Why do you think, in the case of Nasrin Sotudeh, that is becoming such an international uh, concern, that to the, to the extent that people are calling her the Iranian Mandela or that you know, the New York Times is writing editorials about this, Why do you think the regime continues to keep her in prison rather than just releasing her in the hopes that she could do less harm to their reputation outside of prison? من تصور میکنم برای اینکه روانشناسی نسرین ستوده دستشون اومده یعنی متوجه شدن و آگاه شدن برای اینکه اولا نسرین ستوده وکیل دادگستری و همونطور که شما میدونید در سراسر جهان در سراسر کشورها وقتی که اون فرد معترض وکیل دادگستری هست نهایتا ممکنه که رهبری یک اعتراض یک انقلاب نرم یک اعتراض گسترده رو بهتر بتونه به دست بیاره و چون متوجه شدن که نسرین ستوده برای فعالیت خودش تداوم قائله و آزاد هم که بشه به هر حال اون آرمان خودش رو باز هم دنبال میکنه کما اینکه میدونیم چند بار نسرین آزاد شد 
ولی نسرین بدون اینکه مرتکب جرمی باشه بله از زنانی که در خیابان بهشون میگن زنان خیابان انقلاب و رفته بودن روی یک بلندی های گاهی یکیشون می ایستاد و توجه مردم رو به نافرمانی مدنی خودش جلب می کرد وکالت اونا رو به عهده گرفت این جرم نیست ولی از نظر اون حکومت که بسیار حکومت اولا بگم ترسویه بسیار میترسه از اعتراض مدنی و ثانیان خیلی لجبازه و تابع هیچ یک از ضوابط و قوانینه نه داخلی خودشه و نه بین المللی اینها وحشت به دلشون میفته و همونطور که فرض کنید نیویورک تایمز لازم نیست بنویسه خود ما هم میدونیم متوجه شدن که نسرین یک ظرفیته یک ظرفیته که میتونه برای ایجاد تغییر به کار بیاد و مردم رو دنبال خودش بکشه و یک کریسما پیدا کرده و این کریسما همون است که در کشورها بعضی از وکلای دادگستری الانم در دنیا میبینیم اگر تداوم داشته باشه کارشون پیدا میکنن و حکومت رو به چالش میکشن به نظر من نسرین ستوده دارایی یک ظرفیتی میشه که این ظرفیت ظرفیت رهبری است و جمهوری اسلامی از آغاز که روی کار اومده هر شخص و شخصیتی رو که متوجه شده دارای ظرفیت رهبری هست اون رو از بین میبره نه اینکه حتما میکشه و بلکه کاری میکنه که از صحنه خارج بشه فرض بفرمایید برای من میتونم بگم چهار پنج سال پیش از اینکه من اصلا در کنفرانس برلین شرکت کنم یک کسی به نام آقای حبیبی که منو میومد در دفترم بازجویی میکرد یک روز با یک پیام خاص پیش من اومد و گفت شما همسر و دو دخترتون بیایید به کمک ما از کشور خارج بشید چون ما نمیتونیم شما رو تحمل کنیم و به شما سخت خواهد گذشت هم. گفتم چجوری گفت که ما همه اسباب های شما رو خودمون بک میکنیم شیپ میکنیم تمام حزینه هاتون رو میدیم و شش ماه حزینه ماندن در خارجتونم میدیم شما این رو قبول کنید واو. وگرنه زندگی خوبی نخواهید داشت من اون موقع خندیدم خندیدم و به این مرد گفتم روی صندلی دفتر وکالت هم نشسته بودم گفتم من این صندلی رو به همه دنیا ترجیح میدم گفت من گفته باشم به شما شما میتونید به بهترین شکل ممکن زندگیتون رو به شرطی که هر چهار نفرتون از کشور خارج بشید و حتی یکیتون در ایران نمونید پس من فقط میخوام به شما اینو بگم که این رژیم کاری میکنه که اولا خود اون آدم وقتی که اولین بار از زندان آزاد میشه بره خارج این کاریست که میکنه right. حالا من فکر میکنم نسرین ستوده از تجربیات ما خیلی استفاده کرده به این معنی که متوجه شده که اینها شدت میگذارن روی زندگی فعال 
برای اینکه تا بتونه زود از کشور خارج بشه و حتی من از اون مرد پرسیدم گفتم خب مثلا فرض با خنده البته من از کشور خارج شدم خب اونجا که میرم بیشتر حرف میزنم <تصفيق> گفت نه من به شما بگم که برای اطلاعات و امنیت ایران شما شش ماه دردسر درست میکنید ولی بعد از شش ماه شما مهره سوخته هستید و ما دیگه نه از شما صدمه میخوریم و نه دیگه اون دسکی که مثلا یه دسکی توی وزارت اطلاعات یا سازمان های امنیتی سپاه پاسداران به نام فرض کنین مهرنگیز کار هست اون دسک هم دیگه غیر فعال میشه و هم ما نجات پیدا میکنیم از شما هم شما نجات پیدا But she's Nasreen has not shown much appetite yeah. for leaving. She's she. It's clear right. she intends to stay, and you're right. saying that they don't they don't appreciate that, and that they would rather have her in prison. Vale, I want to say that Nasreen is a synthesis of متوجه بوده که نباید اون خاک رو در هر شرایطی ترک بکنه و خیلی خوشحالیم ما که او نسل دیگری بوده جوانتر بوده و از تجربه های ما بسیار خوب استفاده کرد It is so uh, educational hearing from you I thank you so much for taking the time today If I can ask one final question it would be Just if you can reflect on beyond the um, beyond the law, beyond the heartbreaking nature of the situation, uh, and beyond the the regime, even uh, what what can you tell us in your dealings with her on a personal level about Nasreen Sotude? What what insight can you give us about her uh, beyond this symbol and this lawyer that we've heard so much about or seen in the news? Man, do man. بسیار حس بدیه و ناراحت میشم برای این اندازه رنج کشیدن زنی که من اون رو خیلی خوب میشناسم و یک وقتی که من اونجا کار میکردم و نسرین وکیل نبود نزدیک بود محل کارش به من و صبح میومد و ما با هم دیگه قهوه میخوردیم و همون موقع میگفت که من میخوام وارد کارهای حقوق بشری بشم و بعد دیگه من در ایران نبودم اما من خیلی خیلی متوجه اخلاق انسانی نسرین هستم چون از نزدیک یک وقتی دوست بودیم با هم دیگه و البته اون نسل جوان بود از یک طرف ناراحت میشم از برای خودش برای بچه هاش برای مهراوه ولی از طرف دیگه تصور میکنم که ما نیاز داریم به امثال نسرین و ای کش ما در حال حاضر ده تا نسرین داشتیم به جای یک دونه نسرین درون کشور منظورم هست خب این منو خوشحال میکنه که هم ما داریم میریم به طرف به دست آوردن یک نیرو و ظرفیت رهبری از جنس زن و همین که خوشحالم میکنه که جهان دست کم این یک نفر رو خیلی خوب تونسته بشناسه و خیلی خوب داره معرفی میکنه به هر حال رسانه ها 
همه دارن خیلی خوب درست به درستی دارن نسرین رو معرفی میکنن و من خیلی امیدوار هستم به آینده ای که این پتانسیل ها و ظرفیت های سیاسی زنان ایران که ناشی هست از سیاست های زن ستیز این حکومت یک روزی که نمیدونیم کی فرا میرسه کمک بکنه به تغییر مسالمتامیز و مدنی در ایران Mehrangiz Jan, I thank you so much for your time today. I hope we get to speak again in the near future. I really appreciate you doing this. This is a Rook special, the case for Nasreen. If you want to read some of our blogs at, at uh, our website, Rook Reads, just go to rookmedia.com, press Reads, and you can leave comments there as well and uh, find all of our platforms, links to all of our platforms there at the website as well. My next guest is a scholar with the University of Ottawa and a visiting professor at Carleton University. Hossein Raisi practiced law in Shiraz for 20 years and served as a two-term board member of the Fars Province Bar Association and was the founder and former head of the Human Rights Committee there for eight years. He is also the founder of the Voice of Justice Legal Association in Shiraz. In his professional practice, Hossein has defended as a pro bono attorney, political prisoners, journalists, and women and children who were sentenced to the death penalty. In 2012, Hossein Raisi relocated to Canada to escape undue pressure from the Iranian government. Since then, he has been collaborating with human rights organizations in several countries regarding various issues, including Sharia law and human rights, the death penalty in Islamic legal systems, domestic violence, and global networks dedicated to protecting children. He has written and lectured extensively on these subjects, and right now, Hossein Raisi joins me from Ottawa, Canada today. Hello. Hi, John. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for having me here. I, I know cases of political prisoners and the detention of lawyers uh, in Iran are not new for you. You know all about this. How do you see the Nasrin Sotudeh situation over the last few years? Uh, unfortunately, Nassim Sudeh is the example of the uh, how practice law in Iran, how people try to be uh, a part of the justice and supporting human rights. She just practiced human rights and tried to be an independent lawyer uh, to support human rights in Iran. And the authority, are, unfortunately, try to push her back and push many lawyers back to practice uh, justice and supporting human rights uh, in general. And specifically because Miss um, Setude has a voice and she's brave and has a voice for, for supporting society in some uh, ways. 
and the, the authority has no accepted and uh, push her back to uh, practice human rights as uh, Setuda's way. You know, I need to, I want to ask you about this because you're an expert on law in Iran and Sharia law. Uh, I, I want to ask you about how the authorities in Iran justify this. I mean, this this special we're doing has been about Nasrin Sotudeh as a person, as a human rights activist, as you say, as a symbol, but it's also about trying to understand the contemporary judiciary system in Iran. And, and most of the folks I've asked so far, like Mr. Lahiji or Natalia Amiri, have basically suggested Iran is lawless, or, or at least that it does not even observe the laws that it has. Let me ask you, how does the regime legitimize, legally, locking up Nasrin Sutudin? Actually, they don't care about the philosophy of the law and the legal philosophy of the legal system, as well as the rationalization legal system. They, they don't want to follow up modern ideas regarding the rational legal authority. They have the own legal classification, so-called Islamic legal system. Uh, always they have referred to Article 4 of the Iranian Constitution, which says law must be adopted with the Shia Sharia law, Shia Shia Sharia law. They, they, they are believed that they don't need to get legitimacy from the people the authority considers legitimate legal sovereignty to to belong to the divine sharia at the same time they are trying to show that they have a democratic religious system so most of the law are irrational and only people obey the law by force for example for example mandatory hijab law or prohibited drinking alcohol and the key, if we look at the uh, look at the Setuda's case everything is same as this because they don't want to practice uh, the law uh, to be and and to be rational and to be legitimate. But you, uh, but you mean? Yeah. I, mean I mean, they don't even preserve the postulate. We have a reason for doing this for, for the sake of the Iranian people. They don't want to present a rational kind of argument for this is this is why we're doing this, even if even if it's a bogus one. Yeah, if if, if we look at the the trial of the minister today. She denied to be in, in present in, in, in the trial because she does believe the authority and the legal system is not legitimate. And they charge her because she just practiced law, uh, just follow, follow up the law and justice. And yes, they, they try to show. Uh, to, to show that uh, the law and legal system is working well. But regarding the, the Nasrin's case, no, they don't care exactly about the, everything because they just uh, shows up something that, yeah, we have this verdict against her, we, we have this trial, but uh, her lawyers did not 
uh, access to the um, actual um, facts and law uh, and the, the court uh, did not care about the uh, everything uh, lawyers brought to the uh, court. One of the charges that Nasrin Sotoudeh has been convicted of is enabling prostitution. Now, I I certainly don't know much about Sharia law. I know very nothing about Sharia law. But really, does it actually say in Sharia law that defending those who have chosen to not wear the hijab is enabling prostitution? Of course not. Actually, this is an interpretation of the uh, authority and the government of the Islam, and the, the and they try to uh, have their own interpretation of the Sharia and put it in the law, and they uh, codified some sh- part of the Sharia uh, as as, uh, as their own interpretation, I believe, and they try to say, okay, yes, this, if you, Mr. Tudor, uh, supporting uh, ladies that they uh, took off their hijab in a public, it means you supporting a kind of corruption and, in, uh, and the spread some kind of prostitution. This is, this is actually very vague interpretation of the even Iranian law and Sharia law. You were, as I said in the introduction, the, uh, the, the, the head of bar associations in, in Iran, uh, legal associations. Uh, you've practiced law there for many years. Uh, one, one thing that becomes clear in the story of Nasrin Sotoudeh is that you know, she's a lawyer, she's an attorney, and she wants to be committed to the word of the law. How, how do we square that circle with a, a, an attorney in Iran who wants to be committed to, to following law if law is not respected by the courts and authorities? Uh, actually, in, in, in Iran, the authority tried to push a lawyer in a way that uh, they wanted. And actually, they just accepted practicing law in their own way. And uh, they put uh, Nasrin and, and uh, some more humans lawyer in a jail to address uh, some threaten uh, to the more lawyers not to be part of the supporting human rights, be against the death penalty, being against the LGBTQ's rights and the minorities, religious minority rights. And actually, this is a, a, a symbol for, for supporting human rights. At the same time, this is a kind of cases to address through the authority for the more lawyers to stay out from uh, practicing human rights and supporting justice of people. It's a fear tactic, suppression tactic. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, Mr. Raisi, before I let you go, why, why do you believe that they are not releasing Nasrin Sotoudeh despite the fact that she's She's clearly not good for the Iranian regime or the authorities in terms of international publicity she gets whilst being detained. When she goes on the hunger strike or anything that happens with her in prison becomes uh, news internationally. And, and, and none of us would ever want her to die in jail, but one can only imagine that, that she would become even more of an international symbol if she did. Why don't they release her? 
Because, in my view, I think she's in a jail because she has influence on the society. She is a hero, not only for the lawyer. She's a hero. She's a brave human rights lawyer to support women's rights in Iran, to support uh, a, a movement against the death penalty and supporting human rights in all ways, especially on women's rights. And yeah, the, the authority knows that if she gets released, uh, if she gets released, she has her own influence in many ways in the society. Hossein Raisi, I thank you so much for your time today. I thank you so much for the time you've given us. It's my pleasure. sounds of Sino Batai doing our Rook theme there on the Santur. We're grateful to him for providing some of the music there. Our final guest on this Rook special, The Case for Nasreen, is uh, an American film producer, director, writer, and illustrator. Jeff Kaufman has been the producer, director, and writer behind documentaries like Every Act of Life, The State of Marriage, Father Joseph, and Education Under Fire. He has also been the man behind a number of short films for Amnesty International and programs for the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. Jeff has contributed illustrations to The New Yorker, The Los Angeles Times, and The New York Times, and he has written and illustrated several children's books and hosted daily radio shows in Vermont and Los Angeles. Jeff is the director, producer, and writer of the new documentary, Nasreen, which we've mentioned a few times on this program and which has been getting a lot of attention. And right now, Jeff Kaufman joins me from Los Angeles today. Hello, sir. It's great. A pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Um, congratulations on this uh, this documentary, Jeff. Thank you for doing this interview and for making the doc. It, it, it's it's quite remarkable. I mean, first and foremost, the in the access to Nasreen Sotudeh and the fact that you have captured so many significant personal and legal moments in the last decade or so in her life. How did this come about? What's the genesis of this? Where did this start? Well, things cycle back in different ways, but um, I guess the most recent cycle was that um, I'd done an earlier film with Amnesty International about the persecution of the Baha'i faith in Iran. And if you know uh, the way Baha'is are treated in that country, it's really, really brutal. Many have been killed. Uh, if you're a young Baha'i, say you're the top of your class in high school and uh, you're, um, you know, acing the science tests and everything like that, you can't go to college and you can't get a job. And it's, it's just horrendous. So we did this documentary about uh, the Baha'i faith in Iran and the underground university system they set up. Uh, and one of the stories I heard um, from a number of people was how uh, often Muslim neighbors, Muslim friends would put themselves at enormous risk to help uh, members of the Baha'i community, uh, smuggling them into college, helping them start a, a business, just remarkable stories. And for me, that was very nourishing at a time when uh, people in this country were demonizing Islam and trying to go to war with Iran. Uh, it was very humanizing. Uh, and no one has been a greater champion of supporting 
people in need and religious minorities than Nazarene said today. Uh, she's just a remarkable role model, not only for Iran, but for America and the world as well. So um, come 2016, when they were finishing up our last film, we reached out to Nazarene through mutual friends, kind of explained a vision we had for doing a documentary about her, and we kind of hit it off, and um, that was the genesis. You know, uh, and you're you are not Iranian, right? You're not you're you're not an Iranian masquerading as Jeff Kaufman <laughs> with a different name, right? Uh, no, I don't think I'm anything masquerading as Jeff Kaufman, uh, but I think I am Jeff Kaufman. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I ask you that because I, 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 sorry to cut you off, but just parenthetically, sure. um, it was interesting to have an author named Andrew Scott Cooper on the show not too long ago talking about his book on the Shaw, and mm-hmm. he said, and I know that you clearly have insights into the division and the factionalism and the intra-Iranian community debates, etc. He said that he actually found it an advantage for him being a non-Iranian in terms of access to Iranians because you come with less baggage in a sense. Uh, Did you find that going into this? I I think anytime you make a documentary uh, or probably write a book, you um, have to present yourself in a certain way to others and to yourself. I mean, I've done films about... uh, you know, the origins of the marriage equality movement and a priest in Haiti and uh, jazz in Harlem in the 1930s. So each of those are quite different, but you really want to serve the people and the stories that you're encountering. But I had a special agenda. And when I say I, it was really a team effort. You know, I work uh, with my wife and producer, Marsha Ross, and, you know, we have great people around us. Uh, But I I had a special agenda in that I'd come to really respect um, the Iranian people uh, and the Iranian culture and realize just what a rich and interesting society it is. And, you know, there's a big disconnect between leaders of a country and the people. Uh, I hope people realize that about America. And uh, so we wanted to also pay tribute to what life is really like in Iran. And so that is something about putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to serve that as best as possible. I'm sure you're not the first person who would have approached Nasreen Sotudeh about doing a documentary. Uh, tell me about the decision that Nasreen and her family made to grant access uh, to you, uh, to have cameras around, but then, uh, of course, uh, to have a, a film made. Well, you know, it's <laughs> quite remarkable when you think of the fact that uh, just, ha- especially for someone like Nasreen, who's so prominent uh, and is a regular thorn in the side of her government, um, to walk around with cameras can get you arrested and can get the camera people arrested as well. So it was no small decision. I, I think we, we, we agreed quickly, like I said, on, on doing something that was through Nazarene, a wider portrait of Iran, a wide, wider portrait of, of the women's movement and the human rights movement in Iran, and really a sort of a, an appreciation of the arts in Iran, which is something that she loves. So we hit it off that way. And then it was just a question of trying to collect the forces to, to, to make the film. Um, and uh, that was a remarkable collaboration with people in Iran who put themselves at risk to do this. And Jeff, if I have this correct, uh, was it because of your previous film that you're, you're not, are you persona non grata in Iran? Are you allowed to go to Iran? I mean, I, I don't want to elevate my status too high, but I've done about four other films about Iran. And so... Um, 
it just was too risky. You're on the radar. You're on the radar. Yeah. So yeah, so, I mean, but also, I mean, if you show up with a big Hollywood crew and walk around with Nazarene Sunday, you're not going to get <laughs> you know intimate access. Right, could be problematic. Yes. So, so if I understand this correctly, you were captaining the ship along with uh, with with uh, your your partner um, from the states, and you had people in Iran shooting at various moments and sending back the footage to you. Is that the way it worked? Yes, and I don't want to imply that I was sort of telling them exactly what to get. I mean, there were uh, wish lists that I had and that I would share, but um, also it's just real life taking place. So people like Nazarene went to a bookstore to buy a, a birthday present for someone, and that may seem like a small thing, but uh, the bond between that country and other countries uh, is pretty real when you see that, um, or going to an avant-garde art gallery, you know? Um, so sometimes it'd be just these wonderful surprises. But also while we were doing the film, a major uh, movement in the women's rights movement broke out in Iran. It was called the Girls of Revolution. Yes. Street. Yeah. And so that was something that we got to witness firsthand um, as in part, Nazarene ended up defending one of the key um, uh, protesters in that movement. And I guess Hosseini. Uh, but exactly. So I'm still curious about how, I, again, part of the, the reason the film is so riveting, and I hope everybody will get to see it eventually, is that it um, is the access to very personal uh, and and in some cases quite devastating moments. I mean, I'm thinking about the the family collapsing outside of when they hear that that their kid has been executed, uh, um, yeah. and, and we're seeing the raw footage of these people crying and dealing with this. Um, those kind of moments, especially when they deal with uh, Nasreen or Reza Khanon, her husband. Uh, why do you think they agreed to allow the cameras to be on and see them in their vulnerable moments in these difficult moments? I, I think like, like Nazreen, they realized that the best way to make change is to have your voice heard and to have someone who cares about respecting that voice and amplifying that voice is really important. Uh, one of the things that was remarkable to me is that we were able to film with a wide variety of people, some famous like the great filmmaker Jafar Panahi, uh, others less so like uh, a gentleman who helped raise bail for Nargos Haseni when she was in prison. And they all signed a release. You know, we gave them a standard Western, you know, three-page release translated into Farsi. They knew what was at stake appearing in the film, but um, they shared Nazarene's commitment to not being silenced and to uh, trying to break down some of these barriers. That's a, it's incredible. Jeff, Jeff, how up, up to date are you on what is happening with Nasrine? I mean, we've just heard about her being moved to a different prison. We heard about her yesterday refusing to take her heart medication after another hunger strike. Do you, do you have any insight into what's happening? Well, we're just talking uh, often with her husband, Reza Condon, who I have to say is just one of the most remarkable people. Uh, Marsha Ross, again, the producer of the film, uh, referenced that uh, the um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, uh, and she said that uh, Reza is the Marty Ginsburg to right, Ruth right, Bader Ginsburg. Right. You know, that, that person who is just as smart and just as dedicated uh, and just as passionate about rights, but loves, loves, loves their wife and will do anything to serve her cause. And, uh, you know, Reza is just remarkable. Uh, and uh, you can only imagine what he's been going through as Nazarene's been in prison and his own daughter, you know, was recently picked up and interrogated herself. And he's out on bail for, you know, facing six years in prison himself. Um, so what we've heard is basically what, what you heard. I mean, and some, we've been 
talking quite a bit. Um, she was transferred from Avin prison to Garshak prison, which is about 30 miles outside of Tehran. It's been called the worst prison in Iran, which yes. since Avin prison is one of the worst prisons yeah, in the world, you can only lot. imagine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what they did was um, they, uh, they told Nazarene, we're going to take you to the hospital so you can get some tests and some treatment. Uh, they took her down to a car, they put her in the car, and then instead of taking her to the hospital, they took her to Garshak prison. And that's a way of, that's a kind of psychological torture. Yeah. And um, recently, this is public knowledge, uh, some uh, individuals uh, with the government came to see Nezrine on Friday uh, to, quote, unquote, negotiate with her. Um, and uh, where that's actually going to go, we don't know. Uh, but we hope that the public pressure that's really um, going from all over the world uh, will will keep the authorities uh, aware that it's important to treat her right. Uh, but uh, her health is really, really fragile. Uh, she does have a heart condition, and uh, she is using her cards to get to the hospital and to get some treatment or to go home. Uh, and we have to hope that the authorities realize how devastating it will be if they uh, don't treat her right. Well, one of the things that the authorities do, as as you know, and as you uh, explore somewhat in the documentary, is put uh, apply pressure on the family and uh, uh, to psychologically affect the prisoner. Uh, so, as you just mentioned, Nasreen's twenty year old daughter Mehravev was was recently arrested and uh, temporarily detained. Can you tell us what happened with that? Why? Yes, I, I want to make sure I only say what I should say. Um, but back in August, uh, you know, you know, w when Nazarene was in prison the first time, and uh, between 2010 and 2013, uh, Marava was just a young girl at the time, and she was harassed by the government and banned from travel. And that was one of the reasons why Nazarene went on a hunger strike at that time. Uh, and again, just, you know, imagine picking on the kid of an imprisoned mother. Right. It's just, you know, ridiculous and horrible. Um, so back in August, um, the authorities... Four security officials showed up at uh, Reza and Nazarene's apartment uh, house and uh, at about five o'clock in the morning, I understand, and uh, wanted to take Marava away for questioning. Uh, my understanding is that Reza said, no, you can't take her. I'll drive her to Avin prison and you can talk to her then so he could escort her. He uh, went with her to Avin. They um, apparently interrogated her for about five hours without the, her father being allowed to be in the room. Uh, and Maribel, you know, she's an art student and she's a very shy young woman, but very smart. Uh, but our understanding is that, um, you know, like mother, like daughter, she's tough too. And so um, they accused her apparently of like insulting a guard who was, who was overseeing Nazarene. As if some big tough guard at Avin Prison can't, you know, right, handle a right. uh, angry word from from a twenty year old woman. Right. And uh, at any rate, um, they just brought her back uh, into um, Avin courtroom uh, on Monday, and we're hoping that they'll drop the charges. But that's not official yet. When you talk about her being tough like her mom, um, her mom, Nasreen, is certainly tough. At one point in the documentary, there's someone who suggests to her that she should have a bodyguard. They say, look, it's time for you to be followed with a bodyguard. And she says, no, I don't need one. Uh, it, it's it's in the context of everything that has happened to her and continues to happen with her. It's it's a an exceptional moment of courage that she shows. Uh, tell me about what you've learned about Nasrin Sotoudeh's courage. 
Yeah, but can I mention something else about that moment, which I'm so glad you mentioned? Because you'll notice that not only did she say, no, I'll be fine, but she broke out into a big smile, you know? Yes, and that's yeah. one of the things that's remarkable about Nazarene is that, yeah, she's, you know, like five feet tall, five feet two, um, a small woman, but just, you know, incredibly tough. But then she also has a smile that could light up a room. She's got both of those. And uh, that makes her a great person to make a film about. Uh, but it also shows, I think, her depth and her breadth and um, and just, you know, her charm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, she's been on the front line in many ways for a long time. And uh, there's a scene that we found from uh, an unusual process of Nazarene actually in revolutionary court uh, defending um, Sharon Abadi, who was out of the country. Yes, yes. And talking down a judge and talking down uh, a very obnoxious prosecutor who's still in power now. Sharia Padari, yeah. 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 And, you know, and he's saying, oh, you're, you know, you're just defending Americans and homosexuals and Baha'is, you know, and thugs, and, you know, as if all those things were the same uh, or bad. And, um, and she just, uh, she just won't take it, you know. And I, I think that's what's um, keeping her going now. Um, she's just... Uh, She's got a very strong anchor about what is right and what she wants to do. Um, and let me say one more thing, if you don't mind, um, because uh, recently, in, in the middle of the hunger strike, uh, which lasted 46 days, she got an award from a the recent German, the recent one. Yes, the yeah, recent yeah, one. Yeah, there's been more than one. Yes, yeah. Yes, there has. This last one was just devastating. But in the middle of of that, um, she received this important award from a, a German Justice Association. And she didn't accept, have, she sent a friend to accept it, but she didn't do it on behalf of herself. She did it on behalf of four people in Iran on death row. Uh, and that's Nazreen. You know, she uh, always tries to seize the moment and use it on behalf of someone else. You know, you would have some some sense of this, especially as a as someone who's presided over this documentary. And I'm going to ask you about the reactions you've been getting to the doc so far uh, in a moment. But um, we, we just spoke with Ramin Johanbeglu, and and uh, he's using names like Gandhi and MLK and Mandela. Um, do do you think that Nasreen Sotoudeh, um first of all, why do you think she's become such a symbol for the international community in and amongst many um, political prisoners and prisoners of conscience in, in Iran that, of course, also deserve attention? But but do you see her becoming a, a symbol on the international stage that way? I can't project what... Uh the future will lead to uh, or what Nazarene's, um, you know, intentions will be. Uh, but I think the reason she's being mentioned in terms of uh, Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, uh, or for me, the great uh, representative John Lewis, uh, is that she is that kind of person. Um, you know, lots of times people, I've known a lot of politicians, uh, and lots of times people who do great things are not necessarily you know, personally all that great or all that humane. And I'm not making uh, Nazarene into, you know, someone perfect. Uh, her husband Reza says, hey, we're just average people. We're just regular people. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, sh both of them uh, have that depth of humanity uh, that makes them really special. And so there's a good reason for her to be on that level. I often call her the Nelson Mandela of our time because I think she is. And others have said that as well. I had a chance to interview and work with John Lewis a couple of times, oh, wow. uh, the great civil rights leader. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing about John Lewis is he took his own experience uh, fighting for African-Americans in this country, and he realized it's universal. 
it applies to uh, uh, LGBTQ uh, people. It applies to women's rights. You know, um, if, if you're if you're struggling for your rights, uh, there's universality about that. Uh, and I think Nazarene sees it the same way. Yeah, I mean, she is. Um, uh, I'm just thinking about John Lewis then now, and 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 uh, what he represented, and and uh, I guess it still represents one of the most remarkable things that, about Nasreen to me too is that this wasn't all some plan that she hatched from a young age to I'm going to become a famous uh, lawyer and then on, be on the international stage. In fact, as we see in the documentary, she starts she's working quite innocuously in a bank right and then and then um kind of by happenstance decides to get a law degree and you know finds herself just wanting to speak out need to speak out around injustice but this isn't some machiavellian plan that she has from early in life to take over the world no no and she's not gonna take over the world but she might she will improve it but you know i, th I think it, it applies to, uh, obviously i'm here in los angeles we're facing an election that could change the fate of the world and we hope it does uh and so it's that door that opens up in anyone about what's my responsibility towards others right. and once you realize that you know you can make a difference and you should make a difference how can you step back from that so i think that's the direction this that's led her life and you know she also is, is, you know she adores her children and she wants to be with her children and this that sacrifice is just heartbreaking jeff i've asked this question a few times of the different guests today but but if she is such a symbol just to get your point of view on it if she is such a symbol for the international community uh and and you know, media outlets and, and uh, are writing about her, talking about her. Your documentary is certainly, I think, going to make a, uh, a quite a splash. It has already. Why, why do you think the regime is keeping her behind bars? In, in, in other words, what's the calculation there? Why not let her go so that she becomes less of a cause celebre? Well, you know, why, does, why can Donald Trump not stand any criticism whatsoever? Because behind the bluff and the bully is someone who's very, very fragile. Um, and the same thing can apply to a regime. Uh, I'm an American. I can't speak about, um, you know, the psychology of the Iranian regime, but I think that uh, they don't really represent their people. Uh, I think change has to come internally. It can't come from outside. Uh, but, you know, like 60% of the Iranian people are under 30. Uh, and I would say that many of them would say that uh, this regime does not represent their interests uh, and their sense of direction and freedom. Uh, and therefore, like other authoritative regimes, they find any challenge or even perceived challenge as sort of an existential threat. Um, but of course, that's not what Nazarene is. Nazarene is a voice for democracy and, and respect of the law. What has the uh, the reaction been like to this documentary so far, or perhaps what has surprised you about the reaction, if anything? Sure. And let me just uh, uh, sort of uh, crashly say that you can find out more, obviously, about the film and also sign a petition on behalf of Nazarene Sudaday by going to the website, uh, which is www.nazarenefilm.com. And that's a really good way to also send us a note and participate and keep being part of this process. I mean, it's, you know, it's strange when you work on a film for so many years and, you know, you're sort of in the trenches and then it's out there in the world. And unlike any other film we've done, we didn't tell anyone we were doing this until we released it. So, you know, we raised all the money in secret and all that. Um, you know, it's gratifying that it's brought together a lot of groups that sometimes work disparately, uh, but for good cause together. 
Um, there's a lot of dialogue that's happening now. And um, we just, uh, you know, I was talking to Reza, Nesrin's husband, uh, about a week ago and saying, you know, what's the most effective thing? I was having all these convoluted ideas about how we could make change. And he was saying kind of simply, you just got to keep the pressure on. You got to keep attention on, on Nazreen and others like her. Uh, and so we feel this film and all the forums uh, will do that. I'm guessing that, um, sadly, Nazreen has not had a chance to see the film yet. No, but um, she knows about it. I mean, she sent us, uh, I, I, how do I say this? Um, we've communicated uh, about the film uh, even since her incarceration. She knows it. It's important to her. It's really important to Reza. Um, has he seen so, it? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Okay. And, and what, um, did, what did he say? Well, I don't want. To, <laughs> look, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's very gratifying uh, how he and family members feel about the film. He also just is totally moved by Olivia Coleman's narration, yes. uh, and uh, he loves the song that Lynn Aaron's and Stephen Flaherty wrote at the end, for the end credits that Angelique Kijo, the great Angelique Kijo, yes, sings. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so um, those are things he references a lot, and he just knows that this is a good way to. Besides, I think that they're moved by the film, that this is a catalyst for um, getting the world community uh, active on Nazarene's behalf. Is the film going to have a wide release? I mean, what do you do in the time of COVID? Is it going to be on Netflix? Is, is there is a, de- a deal in yeah. place already? Yeah, it's strange. I mean, you know, the, the film festival world is bizarre anyway. Uh, but uh, now we're having film festival screenings and university uh, and organizational screenings, but, you know, without uh, actually being there ourselves. So um, there's a lot of uh, ways to participate and go see the film. And again, you can find out through, you know, NazareneFilm.com. There's a, like, Doc New York is going to be presenting the film starting November 11th, and that's a a great venue. But there's also venues all over the world. And uh, and most of them also have uh, talkbacks, Q&As. And uh, oftentimes Reza Condon has joined us in those talkbacks. So it's a chance to hear directly from him, often live. Uh, we we actually wanted him on this special, but um, uh, we've heard from um, uh, Abdul Karim Lahiji that uh, that he's actually been counseled to lay low for the next uh, few days, especially as we find out what's happening with um, with Nasreen being moved to prisons and and uh, with her health. Um, Jeff, before I let you go, it's been a, a great pleasure to talk to you. And again, I congratulate you on this film. I, I, let me ask you a final question on a more personal level. Over the course of working with this exceptional subject, this exceptional woman, uh, and working on this documentary, you and Marsha, uh, what, what struck you most about her personally? What, what can you tell us about Nasreen Sotudeh um, beyond what we know as the courageous human rights uh, champion, etc. Before I answer that, can I just say I appreciate your interest, not just in Nazarene, but obviously your depth of knowledge uh, and your your wider concerns. Um, you know, we just have to realize uh, in, in all our countries that we have more connections than we have separations. Uh, and, you know, some constitutions, some leaders uh, fear those connections, but um, Honestly, uh, you know, we're doomed if we don't find ways to mutually respect each other. Uh, And we've been in an era of a a lot of disrespect coming from this country recently uh, and others. And we just have to get past that. So I really, really appreciate what you're doing. Right on. Uh, As far as Nasreen, you know, uh, Marsh and I have often talked about this. Um, 
about three days before she was arrested, we uh, had like an hour-long chat with Nazreen and Reza as they were walking through a park in Tehran. And it seems like the most sort of simple thing. Uh, it was early here. It was late there. As we were talking, it got darker and darker um, in the Tehran. Um, and, you know, we talked about some very serious things. And then we'd laugh and talk about something funny or personal or kids. Um, and I think most people will be reading now about a woman who's in prison and who uh, seems, um, you know, uh, like concrete, you know, fighting against injustice. Uh, but it's a real woman who loves her f husband, loves her kids, uh, is very ill and frail right now. Um, and as someone, I think just if, if you met her, you would just say, you know, <laughs> I love this person. She's great. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's just, I guess, the reality of someone who can change the world, but is also just a great human being. Jeff Kaufman, I thank you so much for this today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is director-writer Jeff Kaufman in Los Angeles. Again, for more info on the documentary, nasreenfilm.com. Ashaya? Oh, Thank you for all the work you've done uh, on the sound and, and working for this for the last few days. There is so much more to do with this story. And of course, Nasreen Sotudeh is just one of many prisoners of conscience in Iran. I hope that we will have the chance to address more of these cases. If you um, want to share thoughts, please do so, or any ideas on any of our platforms. But certainly you can comment at our website, rookmedia.com. This is full time for Rook today. Thank you to the amazing team who helped put this together twice a week and all of our related Rook media. Thanks to all of you out there supporting us and sharing the content. Producer Susan, Ponta the Artist, Blogger Negin, The Fabulous Keon, Savi Roham, Aray Merdod, English, I have English Roham, he's English Mohammed. How many times am I thanking Roham? Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya, I'm Gian Gomeshi. See you next week. Mizumbashi. Bashi.